said it was raining brains. Roxy Robinson wouldn't even get wet. Roxy had spent his whole life making two and two into five. But he could smell trouble like other people could smell gas. But believe you me, he should have never taken that blind alley by the side of Perito's Bakery. Your name Robinson? Roxy Robinson. You work with Fat Sam? Whatever game it was everybody was playing, sure as eggs is eggs, Roxy the Weasel had been scrambled. He's a sinner, candy-coated. For all his friends, he always seems to be alone. But they love him. Bugs him alone A city slicker He can charm you with a smile And a style all his own Everybody loves that man Bugs him alone Friends, I should be filling you in a little. This guy you's looking at is the hero of our story. Name of Bugsy Maloney. A nice guy. A little too popular with the broads for my liking, but a nice guy. An Italian mother, an Irish father, naturally grown up a little confused. Kind of mixed up. Oh, by the ways, I nearly forgot. My name's Sam. Fat Sam on account of my physique. I ain't no dumb bum. And between you and me, this ain't no bookstore. This is my place. Fat Sam's Grand Slam, best joint in town. Hi, Jelly. Hi, Bucky. Anybody who is, anybody will soon walk through that door. At Fat Sam's Grand Slam, speak easy. Welcome, everybody, to episode 24. As you heard, Bugsy Malone, we're going to cover the uh, classic kids movie from the 70s here. Um, I'm Jeff, and that's Slip. Hello. And for those of you who are new, the conceit of CFX, of course, uh, Cultural Futures Exchange, CFX for short, we examine different pieces of cultural ephemera, this case movies, but uh, music a lot, TV a lot, stage um, books in the future, other things like that, uh, dive into the context and the time that they came out, what's happened since, our take on the future valuation in terms of like a stock market go long, go short, stay neutral sort of thing, the value go up, down, or stay the same. And that is sort of what we do here. So we're going to talk about Bugsy Malone. 
I'll kick it off uh, first here. Uh, but before I do, any other things on the intro slip? Let's talk about what it is first, right? So we're going to dive into the plot first. But what Bugsy Malone is, is a 1970, I believe, six. Correct. I get confused over the release date. It's that whole British U.S. thing. Uh, it's kind of a hybrid British-American film directed by Alan Parker. It's basically a gangster film that stars kids. And a lot of the kind of elements of the film are replaced to make it more of a kid world, right? And there's no adults in the film. Uh, but it's this film where it's basically your standard gangster plot uh, set in the 1920s. But in a world where there are no parents, the weapons are a combination of cream pies and what's called a splurge gun, which is basically a gun that shoots the kind of whipped cream. And then you have like, instead of uh, bootlegging alcohol, you have bootlegging sarsaparilla and sodas. <laughs> and you have, you have um, right. Car the cars are all pedal cars. So the, so the car's got like a little bicycle in it. And all of this stuff is like completely taken seriously it's it's a it's its own thing. I mean, it's such a unique film. I recommend actually watching the film before you listen to this because part of the charm of the film is just how unique this thing is. There's just nothing like this movie ever made, and it's just one of those things we both kind of grew up with. So I just wanted to say that about the general what this movie is, and then we'll go into our personal histories. We'll go into the times this came out, like we usually do. We'll go into a little background on the film and then we'll go into evaluations, et cetera. So let's start with our personal histories. Jeff, I think you have more of a background with this movie than me. So why don't you go first? Yeah. I saw this movie in the theater. I remember, uh, you know, must've been 1976, um, or thereabouts. Um, well, keep in mind, movies were were around, you know, like at, now when a movie gets released, it's instantly on TV. You know, sometimes it's on TV at the same time. And back then they would they would play movies over and over again. So it may not have even been right when it came out. Right. It might have been a year later, like Star Wars. I mean, I remember seeing Star Wars of like 1978 or nine after I'd saw it initially because they would just keep movies re like Planet of the Apes movies, too. They would re-release those all the time and replay them in theaters. And this is one they definitely did that with. So it, you know, who knows when it was that you saw it? Yeah, um, I, I don't think it was terribly long after it came out. I remember right. being advertised and wanting to see it, and it was very appealing. And I did see it in the theater at first. I might have seen it in the theater several times. I don't recall. I definitely had it on video at some point years after when we had a, you know, beta max uh, player first. I had it recorded somewhere off of TV or got a tape of it. And watched it all the time. My sister and I loved it. Um, all our friends, you know, liked it. It was just a, a ubiquitous part of our childhood, frankly. And when I first saw it, I loved it immediately. Honestly, for all the things that you're talking about, it's this whole world, it's a gangster world with all the cars and the look of it. And the fact that these kids were dressed up in, you know, different costumes. And it was a period piece, obviously, from the 1920s. And it's just very appealing. And I liked it the first time I saw it. And I've seen it probably, um, you know, a dozen times or more um, over the years. And obviously, I'll get into what I think about that. But I just remember it being a huge part of the movie canon of my childhood with Willy Wonka and, and Gus and the Shaggy DA and all the other, you know, candle shoe. 
another Jodie Foster oh, dude. movie. Candle Shoe, yeah. another J- Jodie Foster movie. Yeah, I yeah. totally saw Candle Shoe in the theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I absolutely remember that. Yeah. There's all these Disney movies of that era, not the animation Disney movies, but you know, Disney made a lot of those kind of movies and uh, Apple Dumpling Gang with Don Knotts and, and others. So um, at any rate, uh, yeah, that was it, was it was always part of my life as far as I can remember from the time it came out. So what about you? Yeah. So with me, I don't remember how I first saw it, but one of the things uh, I'm going to mention in the history is that the way this was. So this movie is actually much bigger of a UK phenomenon. Like in the UK, everybody knows what it is. There's constant reunions and specials on it there. It's shown in schools. It's like there's musicals that have been adapted from it in the UK. It's this it's even Alan Parker is a British director, but it's really kind of a hybrid film. And most of the main actors are American, but it's like, um, yeah, it's a huge phenomenon there. Here, it's kind of this obscure gem that we, you know, some of us remember from childhood. And I kind of had vague memories of it. And I'm trying to remember what, how the hell I saw it. And then there was one of the things I read about was how it was released, kind of uh, tacked on to a much bigger hit in the U.S., The Bad News Bears, which is yeah. one of my favorite kids' movies as well. That's another series that I was super into because I played baseball and stuff, and I was really into that. Yeah, me too. Um, I probably saw it with the bad news bears potentially too yeah it might have been that run right because they they would they would put it together as a double feature but it wasn't nearly as big of a hit in the u.s so if there are british listeners you probably know more about this film than we do you probably you know know about uh you know or more british listeners probably know more than americans because it was bigger there it actually was a bigger hit there it was nominated for all these awards. We'll go into all that. But most, most of the cast was British, actually. Most yeah. of the cast was British, yeah. but the leads, I think only Mar- Lev, right? right. Uh, Martin Lev was British, but you have Scott Baio. We'll, we'll get into the yeah. cast and where they come from. And then there's this whole expat American element of the cast as well, where there were Americans in Britain. Because it was a British production company. It was a British director. It was filmed in Britain, right? It, but it's at the same time they wanted some, you know, it's a it's it's set in, I guess, the United States. It's kind of its own world, right? right. But it, it's pretty much we're led to believe it's kind of like you know New York, yeah. Right? 20s I think New they, York, yeah, yeah. So so I just but when I think about this movie, so I I remember seeing it, I vaguely remember seeing it uh, for this show. I'll get into to this, but I watched it twice in a you know twice in the past few weeks, and I'll get into why that I I felt like I needed to watch it again twice. Um, but partly it was, it was perfectly enjoyable to watch. So, you know, I didn't mind doing that, but I wanted to watch it twice for a particular reason. And I'll get into that. Um, but it's, you know, this movie always had a certain mistake for me. I remember hearing about it and it was just so intriguing. And it's one of these things where the thing this movie reminds me of is when you're a kid and you just invent this, these worlds, like you, you know, you build forts and you build like tent cities and you, you have this whole little, you pretend, you know, you, you know, obviously you're, you're playing cops and robbers or you're military. I mean, me and my friend Dale used to take our dad's Viet, both of our dads were in Vietnam. We used to take our dad's gear and dress up all <laughs> in it and play war. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, this using these real canteens and belts and hats that they actually helmets, they actually, uh, brought back from the war. I mean, this was the kind of thing kids did. And this movie captures that in a way that I don't think any other movie really does. Um, and then, of course, you know, it reminds me of another another thing I grew up with, which was the Peanuts, Charlie Brown, because that's another kind of universe where there are no adults. Right. right? It's all kids. And that was another interesting thing about this. Um, and um, 
yeah, the the one thing I'll say is uh, the one thing that really I kind of remembered wrong. For some reason, I thought the splurge gun shot like potatoes, like mashed potatoes. <laughs> I don't know why that was, but then I learned, you know, watching it again, I'm like, yeah, it's obviously, uh, you know, a more technologically advanced uh, cream pie, which we'll get into. So that's kind of the my background. Again, not a huge background. I think Jeff's seen this movie much more times than many more times than I have. Um, I don't even know if I saw it all the way through as a kid. I'm sure I did because, you know, I knew about it when he mentioned like, hey, let's do this movie. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the one with the, you know, the bicycle cars and all that. I knew all the elements, but watching it again, I, you know, it was it was pretty uh, kind of new to me in a way that might not have been to you because you, you know, grown up with it. So so as far as the zeitgeist of this film, this is the 70s. Right. So, you know, you're dealing with. uh, British film in the 70s, you're dealing with children's movies of the 70s. Obviously, Jeff mentioned Willy Wonka. That's another one. And I think one thing I'll talk about, these two films aren't afraid to get a little bit dark. You know, a lot of children's movies, uh, you know, are basically kind of happy and everything. And there's no death. There's no uh, darkness to them. This movie gets a bit dark, even though, you know, it's all whipped cream, you know, going going around. Um, and I think Willy Wonka is similar. You know, there's some really scary scenes in that movie and the way Gene Wilder plays that character. He's kind of a dark, sinister character. Um, the other movie that this, the other series that this reminded me of is a kind of weird one we grew up with in the 70s. I definitely saw in the theater multiple of these movies, which is Pippi Longstocking. These oh, yeah. are these Swedish movies where it features this girl who's really strong. They're all dubbed, so it's kind of weird. But I remember these playing in theaters, and I remember seeing the one where she's with the pirates. Yeah, And it's like, there's adults in those movies, but it's like their kids play a huge a role. World. And she's like the yeah. super strong kid okay, you know, so that wait. throws people around and stuff like that. Pop quiz. Who were her friends? The names of her friends. I don't know. Was Peter one? No. I, I, don't, I don't even know. Oh, you failed. Uh, Tommy yeah. and Annika. Tommy and Annika. See, I don't even remember. Yeah. I don't even remember, but I remember seeing them. Yeah. Uh, but that that's a movie that reminded me of this too, that, you know, and those were the kind of kids movies, you know, before like blockbusters came and kind of took over like Star Wars and these kind of sci-fi movies. There were these weird kind of kids movies that were around. Yeah. Um, and then of course this movie is really influenced by, kind of the era that it depicts, right? The twenties. I mean, there's definitely an element of like Max Sennett and early kind of Buster Keaton and the silent film comedies. There's even a silent film kind of film dream sequence kind of thing that happens. And it's got that style, but obviously the cream pie thing is a classic silent film thing. There's a lot of humor, you know, there's one scene where a car drives through a barn and it's all covered with chickens. That's just classic. You know, you know it reminded you me that of- in silent films. I actually researched to see if they stole from this, but it was made at almost exactly the same time. Is This is a weird one, all right? And it has a, maybe a different cream pie element that we won't go into on this show, but song remains the same. The Peter Grant, uh, oh yeah, you know, dream sequence, you know, or the, the gangster one and and uh, all the, the, those little- Well, dr- that stuff was in the air, right? Yeah. And I'll talk about why, you know, for another zeitgeist thing, that was kind of in the air in the early 70s. And, you know, that stuff was filmed 
around the same time because you have the song remains the same. The concert footage is all from like 73. It's like yeah, from yeah. three years before, but the movie didn't get released till 76. So it would have been around the same time. I doubt they stole it. Although yeah. who knows, maybe some of the same people worked on that stuff. Yeah. You know, it kind of has the same feel. It does. The, that yeah. footage, that Peter Grant sequence kind of has the same feel as a lot of this, but I don't know. That's for another episode, I guess. It is. But the yeah, what Jeff was just saying, there were things in the zeitgeist at the time that influenced this movie, the biggest one being The Godfather, right? I mean, The Godfather was massive. I even think um, one of the characters, we're going to talk about a minor character in the film who has a kind of, you know, it's kind of a big scene is this character, Looney Bergonzi, who's kind of this hired gun that Fat Sam will use totally reminds me of Luca Brazzi. The same thing in The Godfather where they bring in this big guy, he ends up getting killed, <laughs> you know? Uh, there's a, And there's even a montage of Dandy Dan's Reign of Terror. Dandy Dan's the villain of the film we'll talk about where it really reminds me of Michael, Cor- the whole sequence with the baby's um, baptism or christening that, and then there's all these violent scenes. It's, it's, I think it's directly influenced by that. You sure. know, there's, and we'll talk about Francis Ford Coppola during the history a little more because he had some opinions on this film and, and stuff like that. But then you have the classic 30s films like Jimmy Cagney's, uh, you know, Public Enemy. You have the original Scarface, all these crime films. This film, like, definitely is influenced by those. And then another period, a couple other period pieces of the time, you know, especially with the music, the sting. Right. The whole look and feel of the sting is like this. And then you had the entertainer becoming massive. And, you know, we'll talk about Paul Williams's music and how important that is to the film. Um, and another one with another great child actress, in fact, the youngest uh, Academy Award winner at the time of all time, Tatum O'Neill in Paper Moon, which is Peter Bogdanovich's kind of period piece in the 30s. That I definitely think had to have influenced uh, Alan Parker. Um and then one thing that reminds me that this movie reminds me of too is the Flintstones, just because the Flintstones <laughs> was a was a basic remake of the Honeymooners in yeah. the 60s. But it's all got, you know, it's all taking that Stone Age world and kind of, you know, making its own little world in the car. And I just think about the cars, you know, what they when they drive with their feet. That's just curves. a small thing. And then around this time, what's really weird is when Alan Parker talks about this film, he talks about how weird it was to make this film in the British film industry at the time. You know, Britain was going through bad times. You know, there was like a lot of strikes. You know, the film union was kind of a mess. He had he had trouble getting, you know, the union to cooperate with him with what he wanted to do. And then just the kind of films that were coming out of England at the time were nothing like this. You know, there was a lot of horror, like Hammer Horror was kind of winding down. You had to move movies like Dracula, A.D. 1972 and, you know, the Hong, you know, the Kung Fu vampire film, the, you know, the. Uh, seven golden vampires and then you had like uh amicus another horror movie making these kind of on- anthology films with like asylum and stuff like that and you know you had uh, um, what is it the um tales from the crypt and all this kind of stuff and then you had these like british kind of x-rated films we talked about this one of these that wasn't quite x-rated it was more like maybe pg-13 or r which was the film version of man about the house which is what three's company was based on that was a big hit at the time you had these carry-on films that have been made for like 10 years that were kind of like maybe softcore porn like carry-on girls carry-on abroad they were basically just these uh goofy guys chasing around women this was the kind of shit kind of like a benny hill kind of thing this is the kind of shit that was coming out of england there was nothing like bugsy malone so to get this film made in the 70s uh, with this film industry, Alan Parker was saying it was like that was the kind of milieu at the time. 
And that's kind of all I have to say about the zeitgeist. I don't know if you wanted to say anything else uh, about that. No, I think you covered it. Um, I think other things will come out as we talk about the plot and some of the things going around the movie. So right. let's uh, talk about the plot and, and the characters. So as we were you know, discussing, this was a 1920s prohibition era, probably New York uh, set film. The, the mobster that you heard uh, Fat Sam narrate in the opening uh, trailer, Roxy Robinson, Robinson is killed by a rival gang. Um, by getting shot with uh, the splurge guns, which are shooting cream of some sort, which, you know, by the way, if you're going to die, dying in a hail of cream, whipped cream, that's probably not a terrible way. Anyway, I found- and we could talk about whether they die or not, yeah. uh, obviously, yeah. but the but the the scene is like, you know, he, when he shoots it, it freeze frames. It's creepy, yeah. right? It's kind of creepy. It's kind of cool. But anyway, yeah. so that's the opening scene. Maybe right? it's like a laser tag thing where you're tagged out or something. Yeah, uh, exactly. Or paint, paint paint ball, paint right? Ball, right yeah. It's kind of like that. You're kind of done, right? You get hit in the face. You're yeah. done, you know? Exactly. So uh, the Fat Sam is the uh, rival uh, gang leader. Bugsy Malone is this boxing promoter uh, played by Scott Baio. We'll get into that in a second. Um, Fat Sam has a speakeasy, of course, where there's a lot of entertainment and, and illegal sarsaparilla, <laughs> which is still funny. The, yeah. the uh, rival gang boss is Dandy Dan. They're going back and forth trying to take control of the all the criminal uh, sarsaparilla stuff that's going on. Um, Blousy Brown is a, a singer who's trying to get a job at the uh, Fat Sam uh, speakeasy. Um, to uh, not great uh, success there until uh, maybe uh, Bugs Malone starts to help her out there. Um, they are Dandy Dan's men. The rival gang start taking over Fat Sam's empire, um, money-making rackets that he has in, in various places. And Fat Sam is running out of men, and his uh, personal enforcer is, is Knuckles, who eventually... Um, is, is uh, killed by Dandy Dan's gang or tagged out or however you want to say it, uh, set up. Uh, Blousy Brown uh, tries to get a, a job, uh, you know, as a showgirl, as a singer. Um, she has dreams of going right. to she, Hollywood. Her ultimate ambition, of course, is to go to Hollywood, right? right? Yeah, And exactly. so she's trying to get, you know, she, she it's kind of weird. She kind of goes to Fat Sam's to get a job, but then she doesn't, she's like, I'm going to just try it out at the Bijou Theater. Yeah. Um, and that's what happens next, right? Exactly. So she tries. She she sees herself as a as a you know somebody who is a diamond in the rough who's going to be famous in Hollywood, other places. Um, and you know there, there there's a bunch of scenes where she's trying to you know get auditions and she's do does an audition that nobody really pays attention to. Um, Bugsy hangs around at Fat Sam's. He's kind of an, a, an associate of Fat Sam's. He's not really part of his gang officially, but he's not really not part of it. It's really not cemented until later in the movie. Um, Fat Sam has a girlfriend played uh, by Jodie Foster by the name of Tallulah, um, and, but who is very interested in, in Bugsy. Um, and, you know, Bugsy is very nervous that uh, Fat Sam is going to catch Tallulah crawling all over him and cause trouble for him. Um, there's a lot of the girls that seem to be into uh, to Bugsy, and there's a mirroring 
uh, of that in real life with Scott Baio. Uh, and some <laughs> yeah, of the, yeah, we'll talk about the, that a little more. The girls yeah. uh, of the film. Anyway, uh, Fat Sam's uh, loses most of his uh, gang to uh, Dandy Dan's assassins. And, and right, attacks. Dandy Dan basically uh, kind of tricks him into thinking the gun, you know, because he's trying to find these guns. So basically, Dandy Dan has a technological advance that is just that is beating Fat Sam. Right, Fat, Fat Sam's still throwing pies, which is kind of the old way of fighting. And Dandy Dan's got these advanced guns that shoot whipped cream at a higher rate. Right. And and so the whole thing is Fat Sam wants to find out where these guns are made and he gets a a, a kind of false tip that they're at this Chinese laundry. And right. they go and his whole gang gets wiped out except for Knuckles. They all get wiped out. So one of my favorite things is he puts a bunch of fake silhouettes, like uh, like kind of a stand-ups of fake guys in in his window, and they have shadows. So it looks like he has like all these gangsters yeah, still, yeah, but yeah. he's really got one. <laughs> you yeah. know, and that's uh yeah, so that's where we stand there, right? Right. And that that's Knuckles. Um who is accidentally killed uh, later on. And anyway, he has no gang. He asked Bugsy to help him out. Uh, I'm skipping over some things. You know, you should go watch this movie. It's a little more intricate than this. And Bugsy is is uh, mugged uh, or attempted a mugging. And this guy named Lee. Well, we should talk about the big scene because... You know, he gets this guy, Looney Berganzi, right? To he th- We're not really sure why this guy's a big, big deal, but he's like this big hired killer. So he gets him to be a pie thrower. Right. They go to meet. Uh, there's this whole plan of, of meeting Dandy Dan, but then tricking him, pulling out Looney and attacking Dandy Dan. You know, they they agree to meet. Right. Uh, you know, as a truce. Right. And and he gets Bugsy to be his driver or whatever. That's right. And they go and meet and. And basically, uh, you know, they try the ambush, Looney, uh, and it turns out um, Dandy Dan's a lot smarter. He's always one step ahead, right? So the guys come out and blow this Looney Begonzi guy away. You know, they cream pie him. But then Bugsy shows his re- resourcefulness. He kind of tricks the guys. He says, hey, over here. And he gets all the all the guys to run away. And him and Fat Sam are able to escape. That's the, the whole scene where the car goes and you know it's like the comedic scene but that's how bugsy becomes a real part of sam's gang right. he basically has shown his resourcefulness and how smart he is and um you know he gives a, he pays him off he says go get yourself a new suit and all this you know you get you can use my tailor so he kind of pays him off and then uh that's when you know sam's like okay knuckles let's try to invent a splurge gun and there's a really funny scene where knuckles bites it right as you mentioned yeah that's right. And then, uh, yeah, and then we're kind of left with, uh, you know, if we want to continue there with, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, the, the You know, you mentioned the, uh, you, well, we should mention, you because you started to mention about the, about him, about him getting mugged, right? right. Bugsy getting mugged. But before that, he promises to buy tickets to Hollywood. He's got all this money now. Right. He promises to buy tickets to Hollywood for him and Blousey. Right. But then his all his money gets stolen. Right. So that's, that's right. I'll I'll hand it back to you for that part. Yeah. He his money he gets mugged. His money gets stolen. Blousey's he's kind of a you know really insisting that uh, Bugsy take her to Hollywood because she's going to be this big star. He gets mugged, but he sort of saved this uh, this guy named Leroy. This kid obviously uh, scares off the, the the muggers, and. You know, he's a big kid and, and uh, you know, 
Bugsy's like, well, you should be part of our gang. You, you know, you could really do some damage here to, to Bugsy um, Malone's, uh, you know, enemies and Fat Sam's enemies and the Dandy Dan gang. But Leroy is kind of a, almost a pacifist almost. He's just not really that interested in, in fighting. He's kind of shy. You know, he instincts take over when there's a threat, but he's not a violent uh, kid. And then there's a couple scenes where they, uh, you know, talk about that. And, and there's a scene where they're having to recruit other, um, other uh, you know, gang members because and they go to sort of a soup kitchen to do that. But there's that famous scene, and I'll later in the show, I'll play a little clip from it, um, where, you know, he Bugsy, who's a boxing promoter, is like, wow, this kid Leroy, he's really strong, and he, he you know, he could probably be a great boxer and and that kind of thing. Um, it's kind of interesting though, because so he takes him to the boxing gym, and that's an amazing, amazing scene, yeah. which we'll talk about more. But the thing that was always weird to me is like, wait, he's going to go to Hollywood too, right? He's taking right. Boston to Hollywood. How is he going to be a promoter? They don't really explain that, but it's like, it's worth it because the boxing whole boxing sequence is like a, a an amazing sequence. It is. With a great, more great music, right? More great music. And I mean, to your point, I never thought about that, but, but in right now I'm thinking that Bugsy's really not that committed to going to Hollywood. He's just telling Blousey what she wants to hear. That was always yeah, my, yeah. you know, my take on it. Um, and that's maybe why he's always just like a New York street kid. Yeah, he's like kind of a hustler, right? Yeah, we didn't yeah, really yeah. talk about that, like the scene at the beginning where him and Blousey go out to eat. And she's like, well, how are you going to pay for it? And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. And he totally you know, has this whole con where he tricks the the woman at the soda place or whatever at the diner. He basically, uh, you know, gets a gets a phone. He, he he calls the operator to test the line and then she goes to answer the phone in the phone booth and he locks her in and they run away. And that's how he scams a meal. So he's kind of like this hustler. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe he's working multiple angles, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I, I, I think that that's the case. Um, yeah. But anyway, it doesn't was, matter, really. Doesn't it matter. doesn't matter. Yeah. It's still awesome. Right. Yeah, yeah, and the yeah. boxing, the whole boxing sequence is worth that anyway. And it's super entertaining. Yeah. So so as we mentioned, you know, they he recruits Leroy in addition. Right. To yep. the gang. And then they go and spy on Dandy Dan and right. they figure out where the splurge guns are, basically. That's right. right. And they realize the two of us or three of us are not going to be able to, uh, you know, uh, take on this gang who is well-armed by wearing a catcher's mitts, or not catcher's mitts, catcher's masks, baseball catcher's masks and padding and with baseball bats. That's their 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 armor uh, there. So and they have to go recruit a gang. They don't have a gang. Um, Knuckles was accidentally killed. All the rest were killed by Dandy Dan. And so they go to a soup kitchen. And well, I'll talk about that scene uh, later on. In my yeah, because that scene also completely rules. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Right. I mean, just the way the music and I mean, Jeff's going to talk probably more about the music than I will. But the music is so important to this movie. And it's like that's one of the scenes where the muse, use of music is just and choreography is just incredible. Exactly. Exactly. So they get the guns and then they're in business and then they, uh, you know, Dandy Dan thinks they don't have guns. And he Dandy Dan and his gang are getting more uh, bold and aggressive and they go to the. Um, Fat Sam's uh, Grand Slam speakeasy um, to just sort of, you know, go to the hornet's nest there and take out Fat Sam, not realizing that they all have, you know, a huge stock of guns. So they go there and, uh, you know, try to do a, a, a direct sort of assault and they get ambushed 
or back ambushed. I don't know what you call it. Fat Sam and the gang have the guns and they, you know, get scare off, uh, you know, Dandy Dan and, and all that. And then, you know, I'm skipping some parts, but there's this final scene where there's, uh, you know, a great uh, fight uh, between the gangs that uh, sort of erupts in in love and friendship. And yeah, then, it's and, basically a massive cream pie slash yes. splurge gun, uh, just a orgy of violence, I guess. Yeah. And everybody's covered in whipped cream, almost everybody. Yeah, everybody. And, <laughs> and, and, then, and then it's like they sing the, you know, they kind of sing the, the main theme bad guys which we you know there's a couple of major songs and jeff will probably play some of the, some of that and yeah. then you know they it, it translates into this song called you give a little love and then they all kind of become friends and yeah. that's the end that's the end all the people who were who were tagged out are now back and alive. yeah they're all alive yeah so yeah, <laughs> yeah. no no one dies um yeah. all right the, the the cast uh the the casting was interesting um alan parker uh decided to cast uh, several unknown actors in the film. Um, they, I think, interviewed or, 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 you know, did casting sessions, screen tests, whatever, with maybe not screen tests, but like casting sessions with like 10,000 different kids all over the place. Um, yeah, Britain. They Britain, did it in Britain. They came to the United States, to, to New York. They did it there. They did it at Air Force bases in Britain yeah. because they wanted more, obviously, American kids but they were, you know, easy to get to in Britain. So they had all these different groups of kids and they auditioned a bunch of them, right? They did. And for Fat Sam in particular, uh, Alan Parker visited a, a Brooklyn classroom and he asked, it is probably very cheeky uh, British accent, you know, who's the naughtiest boy in the class? And all the kids, you know, were unanimous in saying John Cassisi, who um, Parker, you know, immediately notified, you know, this chubby kid who was this not, had this attitude, his, you know, Brooklyn accent down and cast him. Uh, never had acted before. Um, and now he's trying not to drop soap, which we'll get to a little later on. Um, Flory Duggar uh, is Blousy Brown. Um, and she was uh, an unknown actor as well. She was found on the Air Force Base in Britain. Her father was stationed um, and that she was originally supposed to be one of the background singers and dancers. And the girl who was originally cast as Blousy, I think went through some kind of growth spurt and was too big <laughs> uh, for the role and they cast uh, Blousy. So anyway, um, so for the other roles, they cast actors who were working actors, although one may not be known to Americans. I'll get to in a second, but Scott Bayo was uh, somebody who had been in commercials and some minor things. I, I don't think he was in a lot of stuff prior to this, but he was acting. He had an agent and all that. Um, he, as Bugsy Malone, the Irish-Italian uh, ex-boxer, boxing scout, clearly the Irish-Italian thing from uh, from The Godfather, right, for the, um, the uh, Michael uh, Duvall, uh, not Michael Duvall, what's his name? Robert Duvall character, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Flory Duggar, we mentioned, um, and Jodie Foster as Tallulah. Now, Jodie Foster at this time was well-known. Um, she was a very seasoned pro. Um, at this point, she had just filmed uh, Taxi Driver, I believe. It hadn't, Taxi Driver wasn't out yet, but had just filmed that. She had been in movies and TV shows and commercials since she was basically three years old. 
And her experience just making movies with the process and the people and being around adults and all that stuff was just off the charts. I'm going to talk about that more uh, later on in particular. But she was. Yeah, I think we both are going to talk about that because you can't. I mean, you know, obviously, if there's one actor who kind of stands out here, it's obvious who that is. Yeah, uh, as a just real from actor, her tech, yeah. just from her skills are just in, you know, just her precocity is insane it, yeah, uh, compared it, to the others, even though, you know, I will say most of the main actors in this film are really good. Yeah. But she's kind of a cut above even them. You yeah. Know? And Alan Parker was basically just blown away by how set savvy she was. He even joked that she could direct him instead of the other way around. And if he was sick, he was just going to have her take over. Um, Jodie Foster would just say basically that on the set. Alan Parker would just say to her, just like, do your thing. I got more trouble to worry about over here. She was calling all the other kids Labrador puppies because they were just running around crazy and she knew what to do. She was already a seasoned professional and all that. Um, John Cassisi as Fat Sam, um, the uh, mobster king of the Lower East Side in the movie, uh, wasn't an actor before or since, although, as I mentioned about dropping soap, um, he was a contractor in New York for a long time, and in, and in 2015 was busted for fraud. Uh, <laughs> and did some... so he's his he wasn't really acting when he was in this film. He was he was a crime crime lord. Yeah, well, he became one. Yeah, <laughs> um, he did some time uh, there. So you know, Fat Sam, I guess, was uh, you know made to to see some real uh, you know prison action there. Lastly, uh, and especially, I want to call out a kid named Martin Lev as Dandy Dan, who, um, as I'll go into more, I think was just fantastic in this. He he was a British kid. Um, I think he had done a few parts before this, so he wasn't completely new to acting. Really tragically, he died at the age of 33 from suicide, um, apparently related to um, having chronic fatigue syndrome and, and things related to that. So um, that's really sad because he was certainly a very talented uh, kid. Um, so I will turn it over to you for the movie background and how, how did this get made and all that kind of stuff. Right, right, right. Uh, so first Alan Parker, right. He's a very well-known director after this, and we'll talk about what he did after this at the end of, you know, this section, but I just want to talk about some of the people who participate, you know, made this film and what they were doing before that. And so Alan Parker started out in advertising. He had actually started out in the mailroom with the goal of just being a copywriter which he did achieve, but then he became a commercial director and he was amazing. I mean, his commercials, you could, we we will put this on the Instagram for sure. There's a reel you can watch of all his commercials and he won tons of awards and you could see the influence on Bugsy Malone. In fact, I had a little controversy when I watched this film and I read about some of what some of the critics said, you know, it was this really just like one of his commercials drawn out to like 90 minutes. Um, I, eventually I came to the fact that no, it's much more than that, but you know, there is so much his commercials. You could see the influence on Bugsy Malone. You know, there's like, he did a lot of stuff with kids. He had these bird's eye burgers ads. I remember bird's eye, you know, doing like peas and stuff, but I guess in England, they had these hamburgers. I didn't, you know, uh, I did, but they had kids in those and they had, he has this amazing Heineken commercial that, it, you know, features some guy, you know, it's like kind of period thing about, you know, Roman rowers or something. And it's really funny. Like his commercials are really funny, but the production values on them are just crazy. I mean, they are so well-made. They are like little short art films. 
And I highly recommend anybody watch them. And it kind of shows you his craft, you know, and he brought that to this movie, which I'll talk about. Um, so he was doing that, but then he wanted to make this film, right? He had, he had, he had basically created this uh, world for his kids. He had this story he would tell his kids about, you know, these gang rival gangs, just like a kind of Al Capone, like, so, you know, this movie is very influenced by real events in the twenties with Al Capone, obviously fat Sam is kind of like an Al Capone, like guy, maybe not so hardcore, but you know, he's, he's kind of similar to that. And, um, but he, but the kids insisted that, that the story only have children. And so that's kind of the evolution of this movie. The budget was 1 million pounds. Uh, and, you know, initially they had trouble getting it bankrolled because obviously you go into a pitch meeting and you're like, Hey, I want to make this gangster movie. And by the way, it's all kids. And by the way, they shoot whipped cream guns. And by the way, they drive pedal cars and and chill sarsaparilla it's like probably not the easiest thing to sell right but there was one guy at paramount in the u.s who because they needed to get u.s distribution in order for the british investors to bankroll it and there was one guy at paramount you know this is the 70s so there were you know they were more adventurous then with film and he kind of liked the idea so you know they were able to bankroll it jeff talked about the casting a lot i'm not going to talk too, too much about that um you know uh Basically, uh, the casting was critical. But the other thing that was critical is he wanted to make it a musical. And he wanted the songs, he wanted there to be songs. And, you know, especially because Fat Sam's is speakeasy. So you need kind of the showgirl scenes and all that. But music was really important to him. And uh, he was able to get Paul Williams to do the music. Now, Paul Williams is like kind of a 70s god. And he has an amazing career that even goes beyond that. So we'll talk a little bit about what Paul Williams did after Bugsy Malone. But even before Bugsy Malone, he was huge, right? He had started out as a songwriter in the 60s. You know, I found this fact really interesting. He wrote this song with this guy, Biff Rose, called Fill Your Heart. And that's actually a David Bowie song. David Bowie actually covers that on Hunky Dory. It's a great song. And I didn't even know that was Paul Williams, you know? He wrote songs for our favorite, Helen Reddy, uh, right? You and Me Against the World. Uh, he wrote two really huge Carpenter songs, Rainy Days and Mondays, and We've Only Just Begun. Yep. Obviously, people know Just an Old Fashioned Love Song is made famous by Three Dog Night. That was a huge hit. That was written by Paul Williams. Um, one of my favorites is a movie called Phantom of the Paradise, which is directed by Brian De Palma. It's a really amazing kind of cult film that's like an update of Phantom of the Opera, but with a rock rock music. And Paul Williams did all the music and he's kind of the main villain in that movie, this uh, producer named Swan. And he's actually a really good actor too. As we know, he later, he would be on fantasy. We'll talk more about his acting career after, cause he did more after this. Um, but Parker, when he thought about who he wanted to do the music, Paul Williams was his first choice. He was a huge fan of everything he had done, um, but he just thought he couldn't get him. But his partners, um, Alan Marshall and David Putnam, two producers he'd started working with in the ad, advertising days they worked they kind of worked to get paul williams to do it and paul williams was totally into it so he was able to get him um and i should i one thing i looked up that we didn't look up for a lot of the other a couple of the other movies we've done we've only done a few movies right but i I didn't look up all the credits for people but i wanted to for this movie because if you've seen this movie you already know this but if you haven't seen this movie this movie is incredibly well made i mean everything about this movie is, I mean, it's a kid's movie, 
but the production values, the editing, the cinematography is top notch. Everything about this movie is just insane. How good, how well, and we'll talk about some of the sequences and how artful they are. I mean, one thing, uh, the cinematography is beautiful in this movie. It's as good as any movie I've ever seen. Uh, Those duties were shared by two guys, Peter Bizu and Michael Cesarin, and they would work with with uh, Alan Parker on some of his more high profile. I mean, Alan Parker would be nominated for Oscars and stuff. We'll talk about that, but he has an illustrious career and most of you probably know who he is. Um, And if you don't, I'll list some of the movies he made after this that are even more famous than Bugsy Malone, but he worked with these guys on every, you know, on all these great movies. Uh, Jerry Hambling, the editor, we'll talk about some of the scenes and how well edited they are. The editing is top notch. Again, this guy would work with Alan Parker for the rest of his career. Um, And then I really want to single out Jeffrey Kirkland for production design and Malcolm Middleton for art direction. The art direction in this movie is unbelievable. I mean, Fat Sam's Club alone is just a, it's like this beautiful art deco stage. I mean, everything like this, it's all filmed in Pinewood Studios in the UK, but the sets are amazing. Like just think of Dandy Dan's house, like how awesome that looks. Right. I mean, you could make an adult movie with the same art direction and people would think it was like one of the best art direct direction, you know, of ever. Yeah, like no it's question. just so well made. It's, it's great. Yeah. As I mentioned, it was shot primarily on Pinewood Studios. Um, there were some locations in Black uh, Black Park Country Park in Buckinghamshire. And um, it looks like, OK, so so there were some. Uh, Huntley and Palmer's buildings in Reading and Berkshire were also used. I mean, the sets, it's a lot of sets, but they look amazing, right? I mean, all the sets are, it's like this own little world that, that they've created. Um, so, uh, Jeff, did you want to go into some of the funny uh, kind of stories on the production? Yeah, so the the splurge guns, you know, they tried to um, have like wax bullets that would be filled with the cream to hit the, you know, victims. And when they were testing it out, of course they didn't test it on the kids. Alan Parker tested it on like members of the crew and <laughs> it did not work. The, it you know, left huge welts. And in one test, that's not, like paintball. Yeah. Paintball. That's like paintball, right? They exactly. actually hurt them. Yeah. And not, I think he, Alan Parker even said he knocked out one of the assistant directors uh, and who got hit in the head with one of them. He's like, all right, I guess it's not okay to shoot kids with this. So what they wound up doing is creating ping ping pong ball guns, which were actually a thing in the seventies, as I recall. Um, and then they would cut in when they, you see the, the guns being fired, it's actually ping pong balls. But when you see the victims getting hit, it's with, you know, uh, cream little packets and stuff like that, that were thrown by the crew, um, including Alan Parker. He said he almost threw out his shoulder throwing so many of those. So, um, that when you see people being hit, they were just uh, people were throwing them just off uh, camera there. Um, and the it other, looks amazing though. You wouldn't know that. Yeah, you wouldn't know. I mean, it really well. looks flawless. That, that's right. Um, the there were rivalries between the U.S. and the U.K. kids for whatever reason. It's you know, and well, they're kids because they're kids. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. uh, Jodie Foster was saying, like some of the dancing girls from like Leeds were really mean to her and stuff like that, which is pretty funny. These are all twelve year olds. Um, yeah, uh, th- there was like a, you know, some of the U- the U.S. kids. A lot of them were um, children of uh, people in the Air Force. There, like uh, Lousy Brown's parents or father, who's in the Air Force. 
and British public school kids were kind of mean. And, and so they were, you know, fighting back and forth, playing tricks on each other. Um, a lot of the girls though, did have a crush on little Scott Bayo, um, and thought he was really cute. Although he sounded like, you know, he was inhaling helium. He was, he was very young. Um, and you know, it was just a lot of hijinks on the set. Uh, Scott Bayo talks about, and John Cassisi talks about, there's this making up thing where he was like, they were Brooklyn kids and anything that wasn't glued down, they were trying to mess with or steal or vandalize. And they said all the sets with all the pedal cars that actually worked, these beautifully designed. Which is amazing. Which is amazing. That's so awesome. They said that when they weren't filming, it was just like the most amazing playground ever. And they had the greatest time ever filming this movie, which it, it seems like it. You can see it. And I thought that as a kid, and you mentioned that. Um, earlier as well, like this was just an amazing sort of set to be on if you were a kid, despite, you know, people being mean to you uh, if you were from the opposite side of the pond. One thing I think is really funny in this movie, too, is some of the kids have mustaches. They yeah. just <laughs> they, yeah. just they just put mustaches on them like it's like a it's like almost like a play thing. Like yeah, a costume. Thing, exactly. Right? That's really exactly. funny. I mean, it's like the greatest, uh, you know. A session of of playing fort or whatever you were talking about ever right right like you're, you get dressed up in these period pieces uh stuff uh you know and you're you're on these sets and you have the clothes and it's uh it's pretty amazing so anyway how did this uh movie uh you know go down how was it received yeah, by so audiences? so as i mentioned in the u.s it was not a huge hit it didn't really get good proper distribution and so you know, I, I think it just didn't get the promotion. I don't think people knew how to react to it. The UK, though, it's looked upon as this classic film and it, it's still shown today. Um, people still talk about it. It made a lot more money in the UK. It only made two point eight million. I don't know what the exchange rate between the pound and the dollar was, but I imagine that is almost not a profit at all for one one uh, million pounds. Um and it won, it got nominated for a lot of awards. Obviously, in the UK, it got nominated for a BAFTA award. And actually, Jodie Foster won a special BAFTA award, mainly for Taxi Driver, I'm going to say, but also for this film. It was it was just kind of for her work overall, just because she's so extraordinary for her age. Um, and she's extraordinary anyway, right, as we'll talk about. You know, she obviously, as an adult, she was no slouch either. Um, Parker, uh, basically was nominated for a, a BAFTA for, uh, for his direction, but he won for a screenplay. Um, and the film was nominated for a bunch of golden globes. So it was nominated for best original score, as well as the Bugsy Malone kind of main title sequence you heard in the trailer. That song was actually also nominated. And then it was in competition for the Palme d'Or. So the, uh, kind of snobby guys at Cannes, you know, recognized its craft and, and its uniqueness. And it was, so it was eligible. It didn't win of course, but it was, it was eligible. Um, Actually, I think Taxi Driver won the Palme d'Or that year, which oh, yeah. is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, as far as critics, it was generally pretty acclaimed. Uh, Vincent Canby of the New York Times, uh, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, you know, at the time before sneak previews or at the movies, they were just writing for their respective Chicago papers. They each separately gave this 3.5 out of four stars. Uh, the one exception, major exception, was, you know, one of the most famous critics of all time, Pauline Kael, who just said this is kind of a stunt. You know, it's just a gimmick and it's novelty. It's just got a novelty to it. And I'll talk about that because I definitely, when I read that, I kind of thought about that. And should, should, that's one of the, that's the main reason I decided to watch this again, not only to kind of refresh my uh, memory of the plot, but to just to see how does it hold up? You know, obviously I saw it as a kid. I'm sure it was awesome to me as a kid. I remember thinking about this movie a lot. 
And then I watched it recently and I'm like, yeah, this movie is amazing. But then when I read that, when I was doing the research, I'm like, I should watch this again and see if her statement is true. So I'll get to that in my evaluation. Um, now, post Bugsy, as far as the UK goes, as I mentioned, there was a couple of musical adaptations. There's reunion shows. Jeff mentioned one on YouTube. We can link to it. It's actually like a five part thing or something where they go into quite a lot of detail. Um, it's regularly shown in the UK, uh, you know, just in high schools and secondary schools. Uh, there was a comic book adaptation as well. Um, so it's it's got some sort of legacy. I think um, what's interesting is after Francis Ford Coppola saw this, he kind of went up to um, Alan Parker and said, you know, when we when we do our first films, we obviously we often have these crazy outlandish ideas that seem silly to us in the past, you know, and it's like but he loved the film. You know, he was basically saying this was so audacious of you to do something so unique and eccentric, you know, to make this movie. Um, and obviously it was influenced by his movie. Right. So um, that's definitely true. Uh, as for the, as for the cast, you know, we mentioned, um, we already mentioned uh, uh, Cassisi and his, uh, his dubious, uh, uh, you know, kind of jail time and his actual criminality that happened later in life. But he was also, he also had a brief acting career after this. He was in the spinoff of, from Barney Miller called Fish. He was a regular cast member. This show didn't last very long, but obviously we know about Scott Bayo. I'm not going to go too much into him. We know all about him from our Happy Days episode. He became a massive star. Jodie Foster, uh, probably one of the greatest actresses who's ever lived, uh, you know, won uh, two Best Actress Awards. Um, you know, she's been uh, a superstar for decades now. So obviously she was one of those child actresses who you know, turned her career into a lifetime career. And she's also become quite a an, an interesting director in her own right. So obviously her, uh, Alan Parker's opinion of her was, you know, did bear out. It did uh, kind of was borne out. Um, and then Alan Parker, you know, we should talk about the movies he made after this. You know, he, he made Midnight Express. He was nominated, you know, nominated for Best Picture, Best Director. Um, he made Fame, the original motion picture of Fame. Which, which, by uh, and, the way, obviously, I just want to talk about fame for a second. It obviously takes place in New York, and it's adults playing teenagers, supposedly. Right. Oh, yeah. And it is, if you watch Fame, which I did incessantly as a kid as well, it came out a couple of years after this, obviously, um, a lot of the lighting and the mood of Fame looks like Bugsy Malone in a weird yeah. way. Well, it's the same guys, yeah. right? That's yeah, yeah. what I meant. That's why I wanted to highlight those guys. And 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 the next movie we're going to mention here, which is a big movie, I'm sure for both Jeff and me, it was a huge movie for me. Which is the film of Pink Floyd, The Wall. Of course, yeah. that lighting is the same, right? Yeah. The the whole scenes with the with the school for another brick in the wall part two, where the kids are marching, it really reminds me of Down and Out. Yeah, that whole sequence in the in the soup kitchen. It's like the choreography is similar, but even the the art direction, the lighting, it's all reminds me of Bugsy Malone because that's a period, right? That's like, that's like a period piece in the forties and early fifties at that point, because that's when pink quote unquote is young. Um, and all the kind of war scenes too, of the, you know, the more period scenes in that film really reminded me of this after Pink Floyd, the Wall, he made birdie, a film I really like, uh, kind of a cult film with Matthew Modine kind of, uh, and Nicholas Cage, Angel Heart. Yeah. You know, yeah. a lot of people like this is a cult film. I think it's really dumb. I agree. But uh, <laughs> but at any rate, it's well made. You know, it's uh, 
it's in the Mississippi burning was a was a huge critical success. I've never seen this, but it, you know, people people really acclaim this was a movie about uh, the civil rights in the South, that whole thing. Gene and, Hackman, uh, yeah, with Gene Hackman, right? And uh, the commitments, you know, another musical film, right? Pink Floyd, The Wall, another one, right? He and he incorporates music, and that's kind of been a theme of his his uh, career in a way. Um, and then you have Evita with Madonna. Who cares? Yeah, I've never seen it. Don't have any interest, but again, you know, that's again, another musical and I'm sure it's well-made because Alan Parker, you know, as a, as a director is really, really good, you know, but I they think should, of his films. have dubbed uh, Madonna singing in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about the lip syncing because that is another thing we didn't really yeah. mention. All of the, one of the weirdest things about this movie that we should have mentioned from the get-go is all the songs are sung by adults, most by Paul Williams and a few others. and the kids are lip syncing. So we'll talk about what we think about that in our evaluations. Um, now, Paul Williams, after this, he had quite a, his career continued to be uh, successful. He wrote Evergreen for A Star is Born. And he won the best Oscar, uh, you know, won a Grammy and an Oscar for that for Barbara Streisand. I'll have more to say about Streisand when we talk about some of the songs in this movie. Um, and then, of course, Rainbow Connection from the from the Muppet movie and a movie that we have to probably do at some point. It was sure. a huge movie for me. Um, he wrote the lyrics to the Love Boat theme, another thing we're going to definitely cover. <laughs> and he acted um, in that show numerous times as well. He was in that show. And as well as fan, we covered him in Fantasy Island. Right. Jeff mentioned a couple of episodes that Paul Williams was in in Fantasy Island. And of course, another movie we mentioned in our AM Gold, Smoking the Bandit. Yeah. Right. He played, played a huge a, role in yeah, that. Major role. In that and um, yeah, so he had he had acting career. He, he did have a, a, you know, he was uh, addicted to drugs and alcohol for, for decades. He's been sober for a long time now, and he's kind of an advocate for sobriety and has written some books on that. And then interestingly enough, I found out he actually wrote some uh, songs for this blockbuster album by Daft Punk, A Random Access Memories. That was a huge album about, you know, five or six years ago. That's crazy. You know, they they definitely went back to the well with that. They had like Nile Rodgers. That's kind of a retro album anyway, but it's really cool that they got Paul Williams to write songs for that. So it's kind of cool that his career continued. Um, there's also a really good documentary about him called I'm Still Here that I recommend to anybody because he's just a really interesting guy. And I'm sure he's he's going to come up again and again in, in CFX world. I mean, he's kind of like a 70s deity, as I mentioned. And since we love the 70s so much, he's bound to come up again. Um, so we'll talk about him again, but now with that said, let's get on to the meat of the show. Let's get on to what we think of this film and whether it stands the test of time and Joe and Jeff, sorry, why don't you, uh, go first? <laughs> yeah. And in tribute to Alan Parker and, and, uh, and others, um, we will uh, get to the meat so we can have our pudding. All right. So, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, yeah. So evaluations. All right, here, here we go. So casting, um, Jodie Foster was obviously head and shoulders above everybody else in terms of talent and capability. She was already a seasoned pro at age 12, as I, as I talked about. And it, it's really obvious in the movie, just her depth as an actor is just a phenomenal, even as a kid. Um, and, it, and I'll get into it. I know you're going to talk to her about her a little bit more. And I we have, have to, I mean, we're both going to talk about her. How can you not? It's yeah. like the elephant in the room, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I have some other comments about her. I'll save to, to your part. Cause I think you're okay. Cool. Cause it. yeah, I'm actually going to play a clip of her, one of her scenes and talk about yep. how it's so amazing. Exactly. You have Scott Bayo and Flory Duggar as, as again, Bugsy Malone and, and Blousey Brown. 
John Cassisi and, and Martin Levis, Dandy Dan, who I think is especially great. Um, as far as the dialogue goes and the gangster dialogue that they try to um, imitate, I want to play a little clip of uh, John Cassisi. Uh, at this point, he is a, a future uh, jailbird, but at this point he was not. <laughs> uh, so here's him on talking about the dialogue. Don't ever let me see you left to me again, you hear? I'll start ram this mine right down your throat. I'm Fat Sam. Don't ever forget that. Number one man, top dog, Mr. Big. Always have been, always will be. Now get out of here. Those lines and those idiomatic expressions were what English people thought gangsters would say. Gangsters don't talk like that, by and large. You're a dirty rat, Dan. You've been watching too many movies, Sam. I mean, the syntax is there, but some of the words aren't. But I understand now, in retrospect, that it was for a broader audience. Dances, dances, I'm surrounded by manby-pamby dancers, singers, piano players, banjo players, tin whistle players. Time when I need brains, you hear me? Brains! I'm surrounded by dancers, dances, manby-pamby dancers, singers. Nobody uses manby-pamby in Brooklyn. That doesn't, doesn't go over too good. So you could hear him talking about it. I think it's funny because he sounds exactly the same, obviously. His voice is different. Yeah, exactly. But, he, you know, that's his real voice. They cast him not because he's a great actor, because he could sort of embody um, the Fat Sam. Although sort of, a lot of this film, I'll talk about it more, a lot of this film rests on his shoulders. He he has more dialogue than anybody in the yeah, film by a does, lot. He, he a does lot. a great job. Yeah. I guess my point is that, you know, he's not, you know, pulling a Spicoli or anything. It's kind of his... Um, yeah, he's playing himself. He's playing himself way. to some degree, but he does a great job at it, for sure. Um the look and feel of the world is just incredible. We've talked we talked about that before. I still think it holds up. I want to talk about the cars in particular because as a kid, that captured my imagination more than anything. I remember, you know, as a kid in this in growing up in the seventies, having you know big wheel, big wheels and stuff like that. And you know, I kids today when I see kids around my neighborhood and stuff like that, every single kid has some kind of motorized vehicle. When we were growing up, if you were going anywhere, you pushed your ass around on your own power. Whether it was a bicycle, whether it was a, uh, you know, kind of a kick and go thing, whether it was a big wheel or whatever it is, there was no motorized anything. Um, and the only motorized stuff, by the way, is sometimes you get those like sharper image catalogs and you'd say, oh, here's a motorized, you know, little mini Mercedes that was like $100,000 or some ridiculous thing. For, oh, yeah. Like the yeah, Sultan of Bernays kids or whatever. So. But by and large, you push yourself around. And so when you'd see the in, in Bugsy Malone these little mini limousines and fancy 20 cars with that you pedal around like every kid wanted those. That would have been like the greatest thing to have around the neighborhood. We would have, you know, driven those, pedaled those things around all over the place, just like the real kids in the movie did on the set. And for whatever reason, those really captured um, my imagination um, as a kid, right? Um, the music, Paul Williams. I want to talk about this. Obviously, Paul Williams is very talented as a writer and a performer and, and all those things. Um, and he wrote a lot of the music for this movie while he was on tour uh, in the 70s and recording and writing in different cities and sending tapes of the, the, the output to um, Alan Parker and crew um, as they were going along. And a lot of the tapes arrived on the set, so to speak, like right before filming started. So there wasn't a lot of time to go back and change this and, you know, it was what it was. And one of the big sort of maybe controversies of the movie was that um, they didn't, they were, didn't want the kids to sing. 
Alan Parker sort of had the initial um, thought that he didn't want a bunch of squeaky kid voice singers and they wanted adult singers and they decided uh, to do that. And some of the choices of the adult singers were particularly bizarre. And I'll, and I'll get to that in a second here. Um, you know, Parker says that watching the film uh, after all these years, one aspect that he finds bizarre is the adult singers. And that Paul Williams basically made the choices on who sang what songs um, and the tapes just arrived and they had to make do with whatever that was. Um, I actually, in retrospect, I see where people are coming from because some of the choices were so weird. But it works for me because kid singers, for the by and large, and there are exceptions, are not great singers. And I think the fact that these were professional singers, that these were... Um, you know, adults lending the emotions and kind of subtleties that adult, professional adult singers can lend to the song sort of work. The one example um, that I don't think works well is, um, is with Tallulah and Jodie Foster. Um, and I'm going to let Jodie talk a little bit about this herself. My name is Tallulah, my first rule of thumb. I don't say where I'm going or where I'm coming from. When they came out with this really high-pitched, uh, very soprano voice, I was like, oh, wait a minute. It was one thing for the, it to be an adult to sing the part, but they didn't choose somebody that had kind of a, you know, a good gravelly Marlena Dietrich voice. They chose this very, very high-pitched voice. My name is Singing like a soprano was one thing, but walking like a lady was a different feat entirely. <laughs> See, it's British, right? Yeah, I left that we in love there. Bugs just for, ain't just, yeah. I left that in there just for, for that. But um, I actually think Jodie Foster is 100% correct. I don't think the issue is that it was an adult voice. They just picked a ridiculous singer. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the singer, but like, she's right. Like, if you have like a gravelly Melina Dietrich or like really uh, you know, kind of uh, lounge singer, like a, uh, you know, what's her name? Uh, Melody, uh, I forget her name. She's a French singer now, but that, um, um, the, uh, I'll, I'll think of it at some point later Edith on. Piaf? No, no, no. It's a modern singer. It's just a kind of oh. like a lower, like a Diana Krall almost jazz torch singer, kind of that lower right. register voice. Yeah, exactly. Th that exactly. would have been so much better for this role and it would have fit. The whole Jodie Foster character is supposed to be like a, a seductress and sort of sultry and, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's like the high-pitched voice is just ridiculous. It's a terrible choice. But that, to me, is like one of the few downsides of this movie. I think if they had chosen the right singer, people would be just crazy over the top in love with the Tallulah character and how Jodie Foster performed it, which they should be anyway. But the voice detracts, in my opinion. So, so one more thing about that, though, with the whole thing of the lip sync, because that's a big point, sticking point for me. But what's interesting is, so they it either had a choice of use doing what they did, right? Or using other kids, singers, and lip syncing to those, so they would have to find singers. But then we already know, like, they've already got their actors, right? Right. Who knows if these actors can sing? And we already know Scott Baio cannot sing. No, not at all. Right? Because we know from Happy Days, we talked about our Happy Days episode, how much how shitty he is. So obviously, you have all these actors cast, but then you have to figure out if they can sing. So it kind of makes sense what they ended up doing. Uh, but I'll have more to say on that later. It was Melody Gardo, by the way. I, 
Oh, okay. I've yeah, never she's heard a, of Yeah, she's a really her. talented singer. Check her out. Um, if you like that kind of, you know, jazz, uh, sultry, uh, you know, sort of right. chanteuse sort of thing. Anyway, um, anyway, the idea of the guns, the violence, nonviolence, um, you know, I, I think you'll have more to say about this as well. I thought it worked. It's funny. No one dies. Um, and it's sort of absurd. It's not even like an A-team sort of thing where everyone shoots guns and no one ever gets hit. It's like, you know, you get hit with cream and you're kind of tagged out. I thought it was fine. I don't think it, you could say it glorified violence because they had guns and they were shooting. Okay, maybe there's something to that. At the time, though, in the 70s, every kid had guns as a, as a toy. Like I had all sorts of guns as a toy and you'd play guns and you would shoot things. And maybe that's why our society is so fucked up today. But as an aside, that's kind of how it was. Um, there are parts of this movie where the, um, there's some you know, sexy action, um, you know, like some seductive stuff. Tallulah certainly does this in her, her big number. Uh, some of the other girls do it as well. And it's funny because they were talking about how these are all children, right? They, they didn't know how to act sexy. And when they were being told by the adult, you know, directors, okay, you do this and you grab his head and you kind of, you know, caress the side of his face, they did it and they didn't really know how to do it or whatever it is. Jodie Foster was talking about how she was a tomboy, you know, you know, of course, you know, watch Candleshoe, you can see that she, she was kind of <laughs> yeah. a tomboy for sure. And she didn't know what she was doing, but Jodie Foster just being such an outrageous talent, she was able to pull it off. Um, the boys were, uh, embarrassed by it, you know, when they're trying to say, okay, you know, grab his, you know, grab his collar and grab, you know, put your, uh, you know, scarf around his neck and all that kind of stuff. The boys were really nervous and embarrassed by it. And, you know, but it kind of all worked and there's a little awkwardness if you watch it. And that's funny because they're kids and it should be awkward. Um, yeah, we didn't say this either. And we should say it. The average age of the kids was 12 years old. Yeah, so exactly. that kind of puts that into context. Right. So it makes sense. Exactly. Exactly. Um, the gang members um, were all, you know, varying ages, you know, around, you know, the the, the median there of, uh, of 12, probably. Um, there's a lot of dance scenes with the gang, especially Fat Sam's gang. None of them can dance. Um, which was funny because it's obvious and they're trying to kind of cut around the fact that none of them can dance, including having the worst dancer carry a carpet that they were stealing um, because he couldn't get any of the steps that the other guys were able to get, the very rudimentary steps the other guys um, were were able uh, to do. Um, We talked about how this is just a a completely unique idea um, and how it was executed. Um, and I just think that it lends a lot of charm to it, even to this day. Um, we talked about the kind of battles between the U.S. and the U.K. kids. It, it seems kind of silly. Um, Flory Duggar, who played Blousey, did not like Scott Baio uh, in person. Really, all the other little girls were all agog over Scott Baio, and she did not find that endearing. And there's a scene where she has to um, hug him. where She's like in the backseat of the car and... He's sort of in the front. She has to hug him. And she didn't even want to get near him. So oh, like, wow. yeah, there's like a bunch of takes where like, okay, now hug Scott Bayo. And then she's like, kind of like, eh, like barely putting her arms around him. They're yelling at her. It's like, just hug him. And like Scott Bayo was talking about, he goes, he didn't understand what her problem was until years later when she, as adults, she was saying, yeah, I couldn't stand you. You were a little snot kid. And she, he's like, yeah, I know. That's fair. You know, he, he knew it. 
Um, so she was just like, I didn't like him. I didn't want to be around him, and which is kind of difficult when that's who your main acting partner was. Um, Blousy Brown has a character from a, 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 a direction, art direction, costume design, makeup look is amazing. Not the greatest actress in the world, but no, um, she's probably one of the weakest. She's probably the weakest of the leads, I think. She but is. She not, looks great. Yeah, she looks, she looks the the costumes and everything are amazing. I, I mean, just as a kid, she has that face that she just looks like she was made to play a twenties character. It's pretty amazing. It's true. You're yeah. right. Yeah, um, and she's not terrible. She's just. I think the others just outshine her a lot. Even Scott Bayo. I think Scott Bayo is really good for the uh, most part. Agreed. Um, agreed. Yep. All right, I'm gonna. I want to talk about a few scenes here uh, for the remainder of my evaluation. I think the whole cast is great, as we were just talking about. But I want to call out that I think Martin Lev, who played Dandy Dan, rest in peace, Martin, um, was fantastic. And one of the reasons that I, I I always tend to gravitate towards the actors who give great performances for subtle characters because they're harder to do. Um, it, it's almost easier, I think, as an actor um, to do over-the-top stuff than it is to do capture something really subtle and 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 um, and not um, so you know, you know just you know in people's faces. And this actor does a great job. And I want to play a couple uh, scenes of this. Right, gang. I don't have to tell you how important this is to me. This is the caper that's going to take the lid off a of city hall. This is the big one. The big one. The shakedown. The shakedown. The payoff. The payoff. And I tell you, it's got to be good. It's got to be neat. And it's got to be quick. It's got to be good. It's got to be neat. Quick, repeat, nothing I say, will ya? You shouldn't have any trouble. Just the fat Sam and a few dance-all girls. Okay, good luck, and off we go. Be careful, Danny Dan. So what's funny about that, that's a precursor to the scene we talked about where they're, uh, they go to the Grand Slam speakeasy and are surprised by Fat Sam's gang having the guns. But uh, I just think the way this kid, he's a 12 or 13 year old kid, just composes himself is, is amazing. His, his little accent is amazing. All of it. Love so it. he's got, he's definitely British. You can see the British accent, but that kind of works for the posh, you know, kind of New Englander wealthy. Cause he's like this posh wealth. He's not like Fat Sam who's like a kind of rough and scrabble gangster. This guy's like a posh, rich guy. He's he's like the kind of villain you would see in a lot of film noir films. Right. Uh, and he's got this kind of class to him. And he's menacing. There's something menacing about this performance too. I mean, he's just, I totally agree with you. I think he's kind of the best thing in the movie in a lot of ways. Yeah. And he like, has he's that really amazing too, which is great. He yeah. looks to me like the, the whole house, the, you know, his, his, you know, he's got these, these butlers and everything. And it's just like, you know, the whole vibe of it is so well done. It, you buy into it right away. Yeah. And he's, yeah, his delivery and everything is so, so great. And speaking of medicine, the next clip I want to play is they, uh, decide that a member of the gang did not perform up to snuff in a, in a recent gang activity, a character by the name of Doodle. And I want to play uh, that clip here now. Hi, boys. Hi, boys. Hi, boys. Hi, boys. Hi, boys. Hi, boys. 
Okay, relax, relax, will ya? Well, guys, I'd like to take this opportunity of thanking you for your work so far. Everything's gone swell. Just swell. Gee, thanks, boss. Thanks, thanks boss. Fat Sam must have had quite thanks, a shock. Quite a shock. Thanks, boss. Thanks, boss. Thanks, boss. Thanks, boss. Laughing boy. Yonkers. Shoulders. Frank's Charlie. Benny any moment now, Fat Sam will be crawling on his knees to me. On his knees. What's my file, boss? Yeah, soon old Fat Sam will have as the suit he stands up in and a suitcase full of memories. I don't have a file, boss. You dropped a gun. And I don't allow mistakes in this outfit. Because mistakes put us all in the caboose. And Sing Sing ain't my style. No, boss. Not that. Anything but that. I didn't mean to drop the gun. Just kind of slipped down my hand. Button your lip, Doodle. You're all washed up. But, boss, give a guy a break. Get him. So, uh... In that scene, uh, Danny Dan is giving a flower to every member of his uh, gang who he's rewarding for doing a good job. He skips over Doodle and then uh, because Doodle's about to get whacked. But just the way he was handling the flowers was very, you know, uh, you know, sophisticated and suave and, you know, all that kind of stuff. As a kid, I, I just this watching this this actor. It's like, wow, that's some people have a lot of talent, man. This kid definitely did so. Um, any thoughts on this one? Yeah, you know, there's there's some parallels. I like the parallels between Dandy Dan interacting with his gang and Fat Sam interacting with his gang. The gang members are all kind of hapless and dopey. You know, yeah. they all kind of repeat with the whole repeating of what he says. But yeah, I love that scene. Uh, and it's pretty much, uh, you know, Mark, Martin Lev just carries that whole thing. You know, he's so good in this movie. Agreed. Um, I talked uh, before a little bit about the recruitment of the Fat Sam new gang when the old gang is all uh, rubbed out, as it were. And the, uh, the Leroy character and the Bugsy Malone character go to a soup kitchen and they try to recruit a lot of the uh, down and out uh, guys who are at the soup kitchen. And here is some of the music from that scene. You don't have to sit around complaining about the way your life has wound up. Think of all the time you're wasting. Time's a precious thing to let roll by. Sure, you've hit the bottom, but remember you'll be building from the ground up. So this is the Paul Williams song, and it's just perfect for the scene. I mean, it's such a different song than other things that Paul Williams has written. Um, it just shows you his range as a composer. And there's a lot of range of the songs that are part of this movie even. And it's just great. I just, every time I listen to the music, I'm just like, wow, this music makes these scenes. And it's just, an, to me, an indelible and the most important part of the overall movie is the music and how it factors into the story. 
Yeah, although I will say that's another lip sync thing, like the Tallulah thing. That's actually Scott Bayo singing that. It's not him singing it, but it's him lip syncing that part. And the voice right. is really weird. Like, it is weird. <laughs> but it's a great scene. Yeah, I mean, the choreography in the scene is entertaining. And the songs, I mean, I've had these songs in my head. I watched, like I said, I watched this twice pretty close together. But I, I keep getting these songs in my head. This is, I mean, the songs are so freaking catchy. They are. They are so, the memories, the melodies are all so memorable. Like that when you play it, and I'm, I've just had that down, 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 and yeah. just ringing in my head over the past week. Yeah, uh, thinking um, about this yes, movie. That's right. The bu- so yes, the Bugsy Malone character—that's him singing that song. Um, yeah, to try, try to recruit the guys at the <laughs> and, and it's like when you watch it, it's kind of surreal seeing that. You know, Scott Bayo's got this little squeaky voice. Yeah. Like, hey, Blousey, you know, and then yeah. all of a sudden it's like, hey, da, da, da. you know, it's really funny. <laughs> well, but it's it's still it's charming and entertaining. It, it works like in the whole scene, the choreography and everything is really great uh, in that scene. Well, speaking of that, what's funny is there's a part where the music is interrupted by and Scott Bayo says, come on, guys. Let's yeah, go. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, just, it's like a completely it's so, different it's voice. It's so weird. So, yeah. yeah. I think the actor they the, not the actor but the singer they chose for that was maybe a little more akin to what a real Bugs Malone would sound like as opposed to the, the uh, Tallulah. Example. Right, right. The adult version. The adult yeah. version. Um, anyway, the last uh, w- one of the last things I want to talk about in my favorite, and I'll take my least favorite, is the last scene we talked about where they're um, the big pie fight scene. And if you've ever seen the movie, everyone knows exactly um, what we're talking about here. Um, I'm just going to play uh, the music that um, happens uh, when the pie fight scene reaches its climax. We could have been anything that we wanted to be And it's not too late to change I'd be delighted Give it some thought Maybe you'll agree That we really aren't Two, three, four We could have been Anything that we wanted to be Yes, that decision Is ours It's been decided Where we could divide it Let friendship double up our Obviously, Paul Williams actually singing that one. Um, you wanted to talk about one of the scenes, the visuals of that? Yeah, I mean, you're going to, you know, you mentioned the scene, how it plays out, right? There's there's initially a fight, and then they all kind of sing together, and you're going to play that. But one of my favorite things in this is this little moment where uh, I think it's just two random gangsters. You know, obviously, Fat Sam and Dandy Dan become friends in the end. But there's these two gangsters from opposing sides. And this kind of priest guy just comes in, yeah. like this kid who's dressed as a priest. And he's kind of mouthing the words, you know, it's funny. Uh, to kind of say, let's be friends. Because I think they're about to throw pies at each other and he stops them. But I thought that was hilarious. Like, it I was, was. Totally like, that's so funny. It's a nice little touch. You know, it's yeah. just a subtle little touch. There's a, I'll talk more about that. There's little things they throw into this movie that are really amazing for being in a kid's movie, even apart from how amazing the whole thing is. There's these little scenes where it's like, wow, kids sat through this, you know, or they were they were patient through this or wow, there's some subtle messages going on here and some humor that I think uh, 
you know, it's, it's definitely playing to kids intelligence, which I like, and I'll have more to say about that, but yeah, this is one of those things that I really liked a nice little subtle kind of funny touch. Agreed. And then lastly, the, the final song, uh, as a uh, blousy and, um, Bugsy are going to go off to Hollywood, presumably. Um, it's the uh, other part of this uh, scene and song, and it's this. You give a little love and it all comes back to you. Just a, a great ending. Um, fantastic song. You can't ask for it. Yeah, so better. memorable again. Yeah. yeah. And so anyway, that's how the movie ends uh, with that song on, on the big scene, with that song, which is, in my mind, one of the, the best ending song, you know, sort of things in, in any movie, frankly, that I can think of. Um, lastly, just a couple other things, things that weren't so great. Um, the blousy and... Bugsy stuff, it's fine. Their little love story is fine. It adds a lot of color to the story. It's a nice B story to the gangland fights and all that sort of stuff. It was not my favorite thing as a kid. You know, being a kid, you don't really care about that stuff as much. It, being an adult, I'm not certain. I still think it's, you know, really the best part of the movie or not my favorite part of the movie. Um, Blousy looked incredible, as we said. Her acting wasn't the greatest. It was okay. Um, but there's one song that she sings when she finds out that uh, Bugsy didn't buy the tickets to Hollywood um, as he had promised, I think, because he had been robbed. Um, she's not buying it, thinking he's just playing her for a fool. Uh, and she sings this uh, song in, in her big, uh, her big uh, scene. Only a fool, that same old story. It's a lesson that I've learned And a page I should have turned I shouldn't cry, but I do In my uh, in my dream world, if had I been the one producing this song, I would have knocked it down a couple of uh, keys there and had Julie Andrews sing it. It would have been better. Like this actress is singing too high. It does not work to me. It's a great it, song. I don't like it. Yeah, I don't mind it. It reminds me of Streisand, actually. Yeah, the way it, she sings it. And it's funny. This was actually covered. We should seek out these other versions because I haven't listened to these, but it was covered by the Carpenters and Ella Fitzgerald. Yeah. So I wonder what those sound like. But yeah, I mean, he's a master of this kind of ballad. It's, Listen to the kind Karen of figures evergreen. It's, and it's like he's just he's just it's like, what can't this guy do as far as songwriting? It seems like he can do everything. You so know, it's like you should listen. I should have pulled the Karen Carpenter version of this because her voice is better for it. 
She, yeah, she's lower, right? She's lower. She kind of has a deeper, richer, lower voice. It's not so high pitched. She yeah, should have so. been the singer who was singing the Jodie Foster in that register because she could have. Yeah, pulled there that you off. go. But first of all, Karen Carpenter's voice is like all time great. So it's right, really for right. pop singing. It's really hard to to compare. But true. The the um the problem with uh the Carpenter's version of this is the arrangement is far worse than this version. This is a much superior version yeah. to the Carpenter's I'll have to version. check it out. I haven't listened to it. I love this song. I think it works. This blousy, the blousy adult singer version has this high voice. It kind of works because she's blousy. You know, I, I mean, she's kind of that, that, that character. It's just, I just think it's an, a, a little too high. Like I, it just irks me every time I hear this song because I think it's a great song. It's just my own personal issue with it, I guess. Um, it's just a couple. I would just knock it down a couple, a, a couple of keys, in my opinion. Um, the, uh, the lastly, I just want to say um, that I think Alan Parker and his really superior sense of design, art direction, and design made this movie what it is. Um, another director, it wouldn't have been as good. It's just like one of these things. Could it have been a good movie of somebody else? Yes. But I don't think it would have come together in this way. I think he and his skills and his background and his talents um, are unique as a director, and they really, really worked for this. Um, my evaluation, I, it's going to be no surprise here. I've watched this uh, multiple times over the years, probably at least a dozen, if not more, probably two dozen, if I'm being honest. And I like it now, um, as much now as I ever did. I think it's one of the best movies ever. Um, and for a kid's movie, especially, it's up there with the Willy Wonkas and the Disney era movies that are classics. And it's certainly one of the best kids movie ever. So I'm very long on this. I, I think people will go back to this and yes, they'll go like, what's up with the singing? And that's weird. But um, I think people will get used to that and they'll just decide in the future that this is really one of the very best things to come out of this era from a movie point of view. So. There you go. Handing it over to you. Cool. All right. So I'm going to talk usually like I usually do, maybe about some negatives first. Um, and they might not turn out to be negative after all, but there were kind of some thoughts that came to me. Of course, the first thought I thought was, is Pauline Kale right? You know, is she right that this is just a gimmick? And I thought the only way to fi figure this out was to watch it again, right? Because if I watch it once, you're blown away by how unique this movie is, right? I mean, it's like, it's a extremely well-made kids movie that's like a kind of standard gangster plot, but with all these things like splurge guns and the pedal cars. And it's just so overwhelmingly original uh, that I wondered, you know, would I be as into this movie if I saw it again, knowing all that I know? Like, if you didn't know about this movie and you watched it, you might be just floored by it because there's just nothing else like it, right? But what if you, well, how does it hold up, right? And obviously to Jeff, he's watched it many times. It holds up to him. I wanted to see if it held up for me. And the answer is, she's fucking wrong. It's really good. She's she's kind of one of these weird film critics who gets all these laurels. I mean, obviously she was a groundbreaking female film critic, but her opinions are really just kind of random, you know, like she'll love it. Brian De Palma can shit in a paper bag and throw it on the screen <laughs> and she would love it. Right. I mean, she's full of shit most of the time when she has a negative <laughs> Not criticism. Not just Brian De Palma's anyway. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, you know, I love Brian De Palma, but I don't like everything he did, but she did, you know, she just decided he was her favorite. Right. So, so it seems like her opinion. Well, by the yeah, way, sorry, I, could see I, it. I, got, I got to ask this. 
What was that Brian De Palma movie with Travolta? Oh, that's, dude, that's amazing. Blowout? Blowout, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm just wondering. Okay, thanks. Dude, Good. if you are skeptical of that, you should watch it again because it's fucking awesome. All right. That's like one of Brian De Palma's best movies. I'm skeptical. And Travolta of... is fine in it. He's good in it, yeah. but it's just a great movie. Okay. It's a great movie. You know, Brian De Palma is awesome, but the thing is, is he made a lot of clunkers, right? Uh, and she was always apologetic for, for him, you know? So she's one of these critics that is kind of like, she's very opinionated and it doesn't always, she isn't always like backing up her opinions very well, but I thought this was an interesting thing to say, right? This is a stunt. These are just kids doing this thing. It's a, it's like kind of a, a novelty thing. And I thought, well, maybe this is just another 90 minute Alan Parker commercial. And I was just kind of wooed by the, these idiots, the, the visual beauty of the film, you know, the greatness of the songs and how does it hold up as a movie? I think it holds up really well. You know, and, and so that was sort of my negative. And then my big negative, which I'll still kind of stick to, is I do think the lip syncing, I just don't like lip syncing. As I mentioned in our AM Gold uh, episode, I just don't like it. And so that is my one little thing that I, that I, that I think is a slight flaw. But again, the songs kind of make up for it because they're so good, right? Um, now stuff I really like about the film. So those are, those are minor quibble things. Even the lip syncing is kind of minor. Uh, and, but it's the one thing that kind of sticks out to me. And the other things were more me kind of questioning after the first time I saw the film, you know, these could be things people think when they see this movie, but I came away with it the second time, actually thinking none of that stuff mattered. The film is still so charming and entertaining and well done and well acted and well scripted, uh, that it's good. Right. It holds up, even though you kind of know what's coming with the splurge guns and all that stuff. Right. Um, now, the stuff I really like about this film, we mentioned the art direction, cinematography, editing, all the technical aspects of this film from a filmmaking perspective are amazing. You know, we mentioned that, you know, some of his other films use similar technique and lighting, but this is a kid's film. Right. So he's making a kid's film, but he's making it like he makes his adult films. He's not doing anything differently. That's what I like about this movie. It feels in many ways like an adult film because it has the craft and the care and everything in the in the sharp writing that an adult film would have. So I like that. Um, a couple of my favorite things, stylistic things. I love the freeze frame on the splurge gun shot. So at the beginning, we talk about Roxy Robinson. That scene is kind of like almost like a, a St. Valentine's Day massacre style scene where this guy is cornered into an alley and all these guys form a firing squad and they start firing at him. And it's it freezes. You know, there's there's narration. And um, I'll talk about this more. But one thing I think I don't know if it was an influence, but what it really reminds me of is Goodfellas. Goodfellas uses a lot of that same freeze framing. Right. You have Ray Liotta's narration going over the top. And when my wife, I'll, I'll kind of jump the gun when when he when, you know, that whole thing about, you know, if it were raining brains, Rox, Roxy Robinson, you know, what does he say? Um, wouldn't even get wet. Wouldn't even get wet. Right. Barb's like, this is just like Goodfellas. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, totally. Right. But it came before. But it's just it's very similar to Ray Liotta's narration. And the way that Scorsese will freeze frame on shit is the same way the splurge guns freeze frame. So, I mean, that's the level of film and Goodfellas is one of my top 10 movies of all time. One, it's probably the greatest gangster film ever made to me. And, you know, so that I can't give a higher compliment than that. Right. That reminds me of this movie. Um, 
I love this dream sequence that Blousey has about being in films. Yeah. And it's basically, it's she beautifully it's kind of shot. a it's yeah, fantasy sequence yeah. that is just the art direction, the costuming, everything is like this kind of, there's this kind of old uh, Keystone Cop style piano playing. And there's a, a sequence of a silent film being directed and she's there in Hollywood. And it's like, yeah, it's like, it's so beautiful looking. It's so well done. Every it's absolutely flawless. I love this sequence. Um, the Fat Sam's dance club sequences, you know, the kind of Busby Berkeley musical thing with the girls dancing, all flawless. It is, at, you know, they have the song Fat Sam's Grand Slam. I don't know if that's the name of it, but that's the one. That, Fat Sam's Grand Slam. Yeah, that's Slam. the name of it. No, it's flawless, yeah. right? I mean, it's a perfect parody slash homage to that kind of Busby Berkeley musical. All the choreography is great. You know, the kids aren't the greatest dancers in the world, but they do a pretty good job. And um, I really like those scenes and I love the art deco setting of that speakeasy. It's just amazing. I also love how at the beginning, when he's when Fat Sam is giving the narration uh, and he shows uh, Bugsy going up to the bookstore, he says, it's not a bookstore, this is my club. And there's that whole thing of the whole speakeasy where he pulls back, the guy behind the thing pulls back a set of fake books and he's able to get in, you know, give the password and get in. And all that looks really amazing. Okay. Um, I, I just want to say something about that, that as a kid, I was fascinated with that idea of like hidden things behind books cases where you hit right. a button and doors, secret doors would open. Like I loved all that stuff. And this movie had that. And I was amazed by that. I, obviously. In yeah. It's weird. Things, you could transplant that adult idea and it fits so well with kids. Right. Yeah. It reminds me actually of a totally different kind of thing, which is lion, Witch in the wardrobe where the kids actually open the wardrobe yeah, and it exactly. leads to this other world. It's kind of that same. That's what I thought about with this film is how, it really taps into the joy of being a kid and creating your own little worlds with your, the way you play with your friends, right? Exactly. Like, Hey, this, this is lava. You know, the floor is lava, that kind of thing. Obviously we have a stupid adult show about that now, but you know, it's like, that was what we played or, or this is our, you know, this is our military base and you just have like a, a piece of chalk and you chalk out an area of the asphalt or whatever. Capture and this is yours and you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's that kind of yeah. bullshit, you know, that you do as a kid and this movie took that and gave it these incredible production values and made it into a whole real world yeah. for you to imagine inhabiting. Right. And I love that. Now, probably the, I talked about the editing, the best editing in the film is no doubt the boxing sequence, right? Uh, when he takes, when uh, Bugsy takes Leroy Smith into uh, what's the trainer's name again, Joe. Yeah. Joe. Uh, it's something Joe, right? And, yeah. and he takes him in to, to see him and there's this whole incredible sequence where it's all choreographed and the kids are boxing, but the cuts and everything are amazing. Like the editing of that sequence is just incredible, right? And all the fight scenes, like with the splurge guns and the way it's edited and cut is absolutely just masterful, right? So I love the technical side of this movie. Now, uh, the music, Jeff covered a lot of this. Um, but these songs, like I, I have said, have been kind of in my head all week. They're so catchy. But I want to point out one really unusual clip to be in a kid's movie. There's this kind of side character named Fizzy, who is a janitor at Fat Sam's. And his goal, his dream is to become, you know, it's it's a lot about dreams, right? Because we have Blousey's dream of becoming a Hollywood star. We have uh, Bugsy's dream of just becoming a somebody. You know, like maybe a boxing promoter, but, you know, he's a hustler. He wants to become known. He wants to be successful. But then we have Fizzy, who is this this kid who wants to be a tap dancer. And he has this little sweet sequence that's kind of quiet 
with this other character named Velma and they have a nice little dance together. And I want to play this song tomorrow because I absolutely love this song. This is one of my favorites. Um, and it's just a really nice, quiet moment in the film. Tomorrow never comes. What kind of a fool do they take me for? Tomorrow, a resting place for bums. A trap set in the slums, but I know the score. I won't take no for an answer. I was born to be a dancer now. Yeah. Yeah, great, right? Yeah. Amazing, amazing song. Um, I I really like that there's this quiet moment that doesn't really have to, it's kind of a side plot. I almost feel like Alan Parker probably wrote more for because this this plot's never really built upon after this, this whole story of Fizzy wanting to be a dancer. He shows up in other scenes and he's dancing with everybody at the end. And there's a specific shot of him so that you know it's him uh, in the last sequence, the kind of sequence where everybody's getting together. Um, and that's great. I, I do think it's kind of one of these things I bet there was probably more they had on this, but they just didn't have the room to fit it into the film. Uh, because it does, they don't really follow up on it. But this, there's this nice scene. He's kind of cradling these shoes that represent his dream to be a tap dancer, and he's kind of doing this nice little dance uh, with the character of Velma. And uh, you know, one quibble with this is I, I was kind of waiting to see the kid actually dance. He barely does. You know, he's mostly kind of standing there. He spins around a few times. She actually tap dances. She has tap shoes on. She's actually doing all this dancing. He doesn't do any. Well, it turns out that the actor Albin. Humpty Jenkins was found at a ballet school, but Alan Parker said he wasn't much of a dancer. <laughs> so it's kind of ironic. So we never really, we never really get a follow-up on this scene, which kind of bugged me, but I still love that, you know, we have two prominent African characters of African descent. I don't know if they're American or British. I don't actually know. Uh, but, but they, but we have people of color in this movie and they're actually kids like there's African American, African British kids in the gangs. There's also Asian British, Asian American kids in the gangs. So, you know, there's not just eight, obviously the laundry has the Asian characters there, but it's kind of cool that he just threw them in the middle of the gangs and it was like integrated somewhat. I mean, obviously most of the actors are white, which is expected, but uh, for, for a British film made in 1976, but it's kind of cool that he added these characters and it's cool that he spent the time to have this little quiet scene. And what's really cool is this is a kid's movie and it's kind of not, it's not like movie now where you just be action, action, action. It's kind of this little side thing that could have been taken out of the film, but it's kind of nice that it's there. Yeah, yeah. I really like it. Yeah, I think the lyrics of this song are are actually quite great. And the one line that, I really like is where he says tomorrow is a resting place for bums. Like the yeah, idea, I didn't even think about that. The, the that, idea that's, that's that, such a great line. It is. Yeah. It, I mean, Paul Williams, man. I, I mean, his music is great, but his lyrics in this movie are even better in a way. I, I mean, they just his enhance all the what is happening on the screen uh, so much. And it's just a good turn of phrase. Um, you know, people could, you know, goof on some of his, you know, Muppet movie lyrics or whatever it is i i don't um or the carpenters ones you know they're a little saccharine on some of those songs but i mean some of these lyrics are actually really clever i just want to shout that out 
Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's 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 really great. The songs really are, you know, that's my one thing with the lip syncing is it kind of doesn't matter because the quality of the songs are so good and the music is so catchy and and it just adds so much to the film and the whole feel of it. The other thing is the script is solid. I I love, you know, Namby Pamby or not, uh, you know, British Britishisms or not. I love the dialogue in this movie. It it never lets up. It constantly sticks to its kind of gangstery film noir uh, kind of punchy dialogue. And I love it. And obviously everything that, um, you know, Dandy Dan says is absolutely perfectly delivered. And the, the dialogue he, he, you know, he's actually using is, you know, you're all washed up and all that. It's all perfect. Right. And fat Sam, you know, he's talking more than anybody else in the movie and he's great. You know, he, he maybe, he may be playing himself, but he delivers a really solid performance which I'll have more to talk about, but I think the dialogue is absolutely incredible in this movie. Um, you know, Jodie Foster has some really good moments too with her dialogue. She, I mean, I'll talk more about her when I talk about the, you know, some of the, some of the performances in more detail, but I really like a scene where, um, you know, one of my favorite lines that's really funny is uh, obviously Blousey is a character that is always kind of upset with Bugsy. You know, she sees him kind of really being flirted on rather than with, uh, you know, by Tallulah. Tallulah's kind of, you know, really almost uh, sexually assaulting him as like, you know, maybe not that much, but she's kind of kissing on him and he's not interested, right? She's he's trying the to be aggressor, a good guy. definitely, yeah. Yeah, she's the aggressor is probably a better way to put it. And, um, but what's funny is, uh, and Blousey's upset by that, but then she's also upset when he gets mugged and then he, he promised to buy the Hollywood tickets and then he doesn't and he's still, you know, uh, so she's all she's you know, she had that whole scene where she sings ordinary fool about that. Right. So so there's a scene where Velma, you know, uh, speaking about Blousey pining over Bugsy is, you know, they're all in the dressing room or whatever. And she kind of says, have you ever heard seen a broad carry a torch that high? And then Tallulah says, yeah, the Statue of Liberty. That's like, awesome. I totally love those little like, kind of funny uh, one liners. The other thing is the movie is actually legitimately funny. So when I watched it the second time, I was still laughing at the same stuff I laughed at the first time. Uh, you know, obviously uh, the scene where Knuckles and Sam attempt to invent their own splurge gun is really funny. So what he ends up with is it looks kind of like a cross between a cement mixer and an old movie camera. It's got this big funnel where you put the whipped cream and he's turning the crank and it explodes all over him. It's right. really funny, really clever. Um, the whole scene at the Bijou we talked about where she auditions, right? There's all these failed auditions so, so there's a couple of producers sitting in the audience, like a director producer, and they're auditioning people, right? And they're and and they have these different uh kind of acts come up, and it's all a source of humor, right? There's one act where it's a couple, and the the guy's got his hands in between the woman's arms and is moving his hands around, like you know he's like uh pantomiming her or something. There's a ventriloquist act with one of the creepiest looking uh, ventriloquist dummies I've ever seen uh, that gets booed off the stage. There's a line of chorus girls that are dancing and they end up crashing into one of the backdrops, right? And this is a whole <laughs> setting. And, you know, they they keep dissing all these uh, people coming on and it's actually legitimately uh, funny. Uh, there's also, after the showdown between Dandy Dan and um, Fat Sam, uh, at that scene out in the country, there there's the there's this police chief who's constantly the sergeant or chief or whatever who's constantly after the gangs, right? And they don't have him in many scenes. They have him kind of toward the beginning, uh, but then you know they've got him with these uh, with his assistants 
who are kind of similar to the gang members, right? They're all kind of hapless dolts. And they're carrying this big thing of cement to try to get some kind of, uh, you know, uh, impression of the of the scene. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. But, the, you know, basically, you know what's going to happen. They're carrying the cement. You see the guy, you know what's going to happen. They dump it all over him. It's really funny. Um, and then I will say my well, favorite he, scene. He gets stuck in the cement and then they have to carry him in like a body cast around and he's screaming and yelling and stuff. Oh, like that's that. right. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really funny, right? Yeah. Um, I will say one of the funny things about the movie, too, is the whole rules of how you get killed. Because if you watch that ambush scene, Fat Sam gets hit by a million fucking whipped cream guns. I think you have to be hit in the face to die. I see. Because he never gets hit in the face. He's all hit in the back and stuff. But he's pretty much covered with uh, with a splurge or whatever. Um, okay, my favorite scene is toward the end. You know, after uh, Jeff played the scene down and out where they recruit a bunch of guys from the soup kitchen to be their new gang. And then they go off to this warehouse, you know, they they had spied on Dandy Dan and they figured out where the splurge factory is. And they're going there to basically rob the splurge guns. And what's funny is there's all these guys, all the guards are all dressed in full catcher's uniforms, right? They have the padding, they've got the catcher's mask of a baseball uniforms, right? And they have baseball bats. I wonder if Walter Hill saw this and got the idea for the baseball furies for the Warriors. You know, it's yeah. kind of similar, um, maybe not, but it's really cool that, you know, that's another thing with the whole kids playing, right? You could dress up and have a baseball bat and you, that could be your sword, you know, or you could be a, a guardian. So it's kind of a cool play, but this scene. So basically what this scene is, they're all hiding out. All these guys are in a row and, and there's, there's one, uh, there's one scene where they're, they're trying to get this one kid baby face to go and, uh, kind of distract the guy. So this is that scene. Let's play that scene. This is my, one of my favorites in the movie. Alright, Daddy, uh, this is what we're gonna do. Get baby face. 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 Right. Give us the baby face. Give us the baby face. Here's the baby face. Give us the baby face. Thanks. That's what I need. Okay, baby face, you know what to do. I'm scared. Come on, will you get out there? Yeah, right. Get out there, right. Yeah, I'm a big movie star now. Yeah. I mean, this is so funny. You kind of have to see the kid because it's like the cutest little kid. Yeah. You know, baby face. And his performance is so funny. Like, yeah, I got to have courage. He's talking himself into it. Um, but I just love that whole get baby face. He's like, wait, I'm baby face. Um, yeah. and it turns out this actor has actually been in a million things since this guy, Dexter Fletcher. He's been in like tons of movies, like sure. Uh, you know, the, the kind of, um, Sherlock Holmes movies with, you know, they're not very good with, um, Robert Downey. Um, but, but he's also been in like rocket man and Bohemian raps and he's been in a ton of movies. So he's had a whole career since this, Yeah, but yeah, he kind of steals this whole scene and it's really funny. Um, this whole scene is great. Uh, now, I will say the main actors are great. Um, and uh, I will say, agree with Jeff that that uh, Martin Love is Dandy Dan is a real standout. But I do want to kind of hit get back to Sam uh, because I do love Sam. He's again, he's he, a lot of the movie sits on his shoulders because he has more dialogue than anybody by a lot. And I want to play a scene. Jeff played the scene that's kind of the parallel to this, right? 
Um, and you could, in this scene, you kind of see how Dandy Dan is actually more menacing than Fat Sam, if you compare the two scenes, but they're almost identical, right? This is them talking to their gang. This is Fats, this is the parallel scene with Fat Sam talking to his gang. So let's play that. Come on, you guys, get in here. We got business to do. We can't waste all this time. Right, let's get down to it. Don't do that, Snake Eyes, it's thinking time. And don't do that, Knuckles. Sure thing, boss. All right, let's start at the beginning. We're being out smarter by that lounge lizard, right? Right. We're gonna get back on top, right? Right, right back, back on, on top, top, boss. We're gonna kick that drugstore cowboy right into line. You, you bet, bet boss. boss. Sure, we've been a little slow off the mark, but dumb bums we ain't. No, oh, dumb, dumb bums, bums we ain't. Hand me a pie. Louie, over there into the corner. Me, boss? Why me, Bruce? Louie, into the corner. What'll I do, Bruce? Nothing, Louie. You see? Missed. Okay, Louie, you can sit down now. Even a dumb mug like Louie's too quick for us. That's the root of our troubles. We're behind the times. Uh, I don't get it, boss. We ain't never gonna get back on top with this kind of hardware, Knuckles. It's old-fashioned. In short... Yeah, so it's almost the same scene, except he actually is throwing a pie at the guy just to demonstrate how it's easy to dodge the pie right? Uh, as opposed to actually killing the guy. So it's like Danny Dan actually murders the guy who screws up on his uh, his uh, team. Uh, but it's it's just, I mean, the delivery of those lines is pretty much flawless. I mean, he's, he's great. And, uh, you know, he really sounds like the kind of, you know, he's delivering those away, almost the way an adult would, not quite, but he's really solid on that in that scene. I really like his acting. Now, Jodie Foster, we mentioned, kind of towers above the others. Um, and I will say, I didn't mention this when you played Tallulah, but I think her lip syncing is among the worst of, of them. Like, And it's probably because it's, again, it, I think she's not committed to it because probably she's like not into doing it. And she obviously had problems with the voice they used, and we do too, right? It doesn't go with her natural speaking voice at all. Um, it actually sounds more Betty Boopish and yeah. childish than her real voice. Because the thing about Jodie Foster that singles her out is she sounds like there is, I mean, I think there is no difference between how she plays this kind of uh, femme fatale part and the way an adult accomplished actress would play this part. Like the way she delivers the lines, she sounds like a grown woman to me. Like she sounds like an adult. Uh, she is so much more mature than anyone else. And she has so much more raw talent than anyone else um, that it just really stands out. So I I really like this. Um, uh, I think she, I think the other thing is maybe some of these kids don't understand the dialogue they're actually saying, you know, like, like, do they really know what they're saying with some of these lines? Like, I wonder about Blousey. Like, does right. she really even know about, uh, she's got a lot of one-liners, you know, there's kind of a romantic comedy tete-a-tete between her and Scott Bayo, you know, where they kind of trade off lines. And it doesn't really sound like they fully understand the lines, even though they do a fine job with it. But Jodie Foster, she gets everything she's saying, you can tell, and she delivers it absolutely perfectly. So let's play this clip uh, from Don't Jodie Foster ducks, and Scott Bayo. Oh, I said beat it. Long time no see, Bugsy. Well, you know how it is. Yeah. You used to come and see me every night. I've been busy. Oh, yeah? Busy doing what? Oh, this and that. 
shoe leather? Yes, ma'am. You know, you're aces, Bugsy. I've always found you kind of special. Careful. You're racing my motor. Oh, come on, Bugsy. Give a girl a break. Uh, are you sure you got the right fella? You're not like all those other saps. No? No. You've got lovely brown eyes. <laughs> There'll be lovely black eyes if Fat Sam catches us. How about smearing my lipstick? Careful, Tallulah. You call me close, I have to call my lawyer. So call him. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's good. It's good dialogue, but you could definitely see that Jodie Foster. I mean, Scott Bayo is really good in this movie, and I like him as the lead. Um, and I like the scenes with him. He's he's effective, but you could definitely see he's kind of outplayed here a little bit. Um, she's she's the best actor by yeah, a long no time. Shame and she's that. the best actor yeah. as an adult, yeah. right? I mean, she obviously was already great and she was destined to be great, so she's kind of stands out. And she had a lot more experience than the others, right? Yeah. She was in like copper tone ads when she was three years old and crazy. commercials and a ton of movies. And so I actually find how good she is. It's almost like a preternatural maturity at that young age. Yeah. She's very precocious. I think she's one of these people with like a super high IQ, if I remember correctly, too. Yeah. She's it, like really smart. It, yeah. It, it's, it's so weird that she's that mature. At such a young age, it's almost like a little sad and disturbing to me in the sense that she spent her entire childhood on movie sets around adults. And I think that has something to do with it. And it, yeah, as well. maybe it's just like, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's very strange to me about how much more mature she is compared to everybody else. And I just, I don't know, it kind of bums me out because it's like she didn't have a childhood, it seems like, in some regards, perhaps. But I don't know. She was in Candleshoe, which now we're going to have to cover that movie. because. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I saw that in the movies for sure. <laughs> um, so anyway, and then Scott Baio, finally, I like I mentioned, I love the scene where he kind of cons, uh, he kind of gets them a free meal, him and Blousey. I, I like most of the scenes with him. He's really good. Um, you know, he's believable as a lead. Um, you know, obviously he had talent as an actor and charisma as a, as a movie star. Um, you know, the music, Jeff went over a lot of it. Um, you know, well, you know, you can hear a lot of this on YouTube. You should really, you should really just see the movie, um, and see the music the way it was meant to be seen in the context of the film. But even outside of the film, these songs are great and memorable, as we mentioned. And then finally, the whole thing of the, you know, the whole thing I was trying to decide if it was if the movie stood on its own without this and really, or with this uh, for repeated viewings is the novelty of the whole kidification of the gangster world. You know, the splurge guns, the pedal cars, the sarsaparilla racket, the, you know, the soda, the soda, uh, sodas at the bar, the baseball outfits uh, for the guards in the final scene, you know, it's just amazing. Uh, all that just makes it so unique. So my evaluation Yes, it's good. The movie's really good. I really like it. It's a great children's film. Uh, it's decent, solid. It's beautifully shot, well-edited, crafted, incredibly catchy songs, mostly well-acted. I would say it's well-acted and excellently acted by a few. Um, and yeah, there's a novelty to it, but I just think because of the, the craft involved, 
And the fact that it's entertaining on its own, just as a story. I mean, we didn't even talk about the scenes where, you know, they have those stylistic scenes where they have the newspaper kind of spinning into view. That's how I figured out it was September 1927. Cause I'm like, look at the date. And I'm like, holy shit. It's actually a real looking newspaper. And they have the newscaster speak. And then they have that one scene, a couple of the scenes where they have a, a, a series of phone booths that are meant to be coming from around the world. And they have different international characters speaking in their own language about, oh, the news flash of this gang war. Right. right. And then the final guy is a British guy who says, that's not cricket. You know, it's yeah. really funny. Um, and then those kids all get pied at the end, you know, yeah. as part of the pie scene. Right. So that's really clever. Um, one thing, you know, we've talked about this before, the 70s, right? And especially with television, we talked about, Jeff has mentioned many times, you know, we talked about in Free's Company. We talked about it in our game show episode. We talked about it in the Happy Days episode in Fantasy Island. That 70s TV made us dumber, right? It might've made us dumber. I think movies like this and Willy Wonka made us smarter. Definitely. I think this movie made us smarter because again, the creativity and the, and the, the it's almost literary, this dialogue, you know, the, the storytelling, the sophistication for kids. This movie assumes kids are smart. That's it doesn't assume they're dumb, yeah, like a lot of kids' movies, right? Yep. And so I feel like this movie, as opposed to the TV shows we watched as kids, actually what probably helped us get smarter, right? Um, now, whether it holds up or not, I'm kind of less long than Jeff, you know, because the thing is, is one, well, one of the things I wanted to mention that I forgot that's kind of funny as hell is you look up a movie like Bugsy Malone, right? It's a kid's movie. So there's all these websites for parents about like, what is safe for your kid? Like we want to protect our kids so much now from anything that might upset them, right? Well, precious anything scary or violent. Yes. Yeah. Snowflakes. Right. And it's like, these sites are so funny. There's some Christian ones too, are like, this was my favorite movie as a child, but I realize it has no moral center and blah, 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 blah. You know, it's got no, no biblical stuff. It's like, okay, that makes me want to side with the movie more a lot. And then the other thing is some of these things, oh, the splurge guns are violent and kids die. And it's like, no one dies. No one dies. You know, it's a fantasy. It's fun. And kids play guns. And that's just, you know, kids play cowboys and they play war and, you know, they play cops and robbers. This is just, stuff kids do it's like they're emulating the adult world and obviously movies now are much more violent anyway um this is all in fun and it's it those those sites just made me laugh at how ridiculous it is um but as to it holds up you know as far as the violence thing there it's not really it's a little creepy but it's all in fun and i think kids are smart enough to tell that um and the other thing is but i think that my question is i'd really like i probably won't watch this movie again that often but what i really want to do with this movie and what would make me decide if it holds up is to actually watch it with a kid you know because i watched like my 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 nieces uh one one of my nieces maddie she's a lot older now but she you know five five or six years ago when she was still younger she's a teenager now we she was really into musical theater right she was really into hamilton and uh what Evan, dear Evan Hansen and all these, you know, kids love musical theater now. So she was all into that. So my wife said, let's get her a bunch of old movies like singing in the rain and, you know, uh, my fair lady. And let's watch all these movies right with her and just have pizza. Well, singing in the rain is a movie I love. And I'll probably talk about it as much on this show as Jeff talks about Steely Dan, um, <laughs> because and, I love it so flash. much, yeah. but yeah, our quarter flash, but the, um, the thing about this movie is it's actually funny. And if you watch this movie now, even though it's from 1950, it's still funny, right? Just like Buster Keaton movies or Harold Lloyd movies from the 20s. If you watch them in a crowd, in a, in a theater, it's funny. Everybody laughs. 
the jokes don't get old, even though the movies are like 100 years old, right? So I showed her this movie and she laughed at all the right stuff. Like she laughed at all the right parts. She enjoyed the movie. So I would, I would like to show this to a kid, like, uh, or, you know, if I ever have a, a niece or a nephew, or I have a, um, I have a, a little second cousin that was just born, you know, maybe when she gets older, I'll put this on and let's see what kids think of it. Because I think that's, what's going to decide if it, if it stands the test of time is like, do kids still have that same reaction to it that we did then, even though kids are exposed to stuff that's so much more technologically advanced and everything like that. I think this movie's well made enough. And I think it plays to that fantasy element. Like Jeff said, when he saw the speakeasy, he was completely entranced by this idea of like a secret room you could go into that was hidden behind a bookcase, right? Kids, I think still will always have that. So I think it probably will be long, but I'm kind of on the borderline. I don't know, especially in the US, this movie just isn't known enough. It probably needs to be known more. Maybe we just need to spread the word. You know, it's, it's really good. Cool. That's it. All right. Well, good. I think we're both long to varying degrees. So if you have not seen the movie and you uh, are on the fence about that, go see it. You can actually find it on YouTube currently um, for free. Uh, It's up there. Who knows if that will remain, but definitely you can rent it. You can buy it. It's great. You should go and watch it. It's, it's charming all around, even if you don't have kids in my opinion. All right, we'll leave it here. It has been episode 24 of Bugsy Malone, and we will catch you next time for a very special 25th episode. And we will leave that now. Bye. Bye. So you wanna be a boxer in the golden ring? You punch like a southbound freight train Tell me just one thing Can you move anywhere like a hummingbird's wing If you need to Ooh, that's fast Can you bob, can you weave, can you fake and see when you need to Well, you might as well quit If you haven't got it